I could not believe what I was seeing. I could have filled the back of his head with 556, which is an absolute joke. Well, it's not an ape, because if the Sasquatch was an ape, we would already have one. What are these elusive hominids that stalk the wilderness? Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Creek Devil. Tom, would you like to introduce our guest and kick this off? Yeah, absolutely. We got Chuck with us today, and real excited to hear from him. He's in Oklahoma and has some very interesting information. And before we kick it off here, I just want to say thank you to our audience. And if you really like the show, uh, click the like button. It feeds the algorithm because that's a hungry algorithm. And then uh, click the like and subscribe. Click the bell. And if you want to support the show, you can do that through Patreon. And we've got a link in the description. Um, Chuck, I don't know where to start with you. So I'm going to hand you the mic and just kind of start at the beginning and give us your most fascinating uh, encounter. Okay. Um I can give you my first encounter that I had and kind of lead up to that. Um, when I was young, I was probably seven or eight years old. Uh, my mom allowed me to go watch a movie that was on at the theater. And it was called uh, uh, Bigfoot, The Legend of Sasquatch, or the Sasquatch, The Legend of Bigfoot, one of the two. I always get it confused. But I watched that film, and I was hooked on the subject. Um, I, uh, I used, you know, schools used to send out this flyer. It was for reading and you could order books from, from this company. And, uh, after, after watching that film, I got every book I could ever get my hands on when it came to Bigfoot and, uh, the cryptid sort of side of things. And uh, I was just hooked. And, uh, I read a lot of books, John Green's book and a couple of others. And I, uh, I always wanted to see one. Uh, I believed that they were real at the time and I, I just wanted to see one, but I, I thought that if I wanted to see one and, and got the chance to see one, I would have to go to Washington or Oregon or up into Canada or someplace like that. Um, Never thought in a million years that Bigfoot was in Oklahoma or Texas or anywhere in the South at that time. And uh, the older I got, I got married and had a son. And um, my son got up old enough to where he wanted to watch TV with dad. So uh, we started watching Finding Bigfoot. And um, of course, we were glued to the tv every time it came on and they came to uh they came to oklahoma and i for the life of me i couldn't figure out why they were here i, I thought well maybe they're trying to grow their their uh 
watching base or something like that. And I asked my son, I said, do you want to, you want to go meet these guys? Cause I know where they're going to be. And he said, absolutely. So, um, they had it at a, a ranch here in Oklahoma where they had their town hall meeting and we went up there and I, uh, I was stunned. Uh, I bet you there was a thousand people there. Um, and I, I just couldn't, I, I didn't understand why all these people were here because I, my thought was, well, Bigfoot's and up North are not anywhere down South. And, uh, we, we started standing in a line and got to meet all four of the, the people of the show. And, and that was pretty cool. And, uh, but the thing that caught my eye the most, there was a guy that was standing in line and he had a casted footprint and it was a 16 inch print. And I asked him, I said, where'd you get that? I'd like to get me one of those. And he just started laughing at me. And, uh, he said, well, we we got we found this trackway on Canadian River, which the Canadian River where I live I live in kind of north central Oklahoma, and the Canadian River is about probably twenty miles from me to the south, and then to the north of me is the Cimarron River. So we have I'm actually in between two rivers, which is a pretty good spot uh, considering what I've seen and what I've done over the past couple of years, but. So that was in 2014. In 2015, I was working for an oil field company, driving an oil field truck. And uh, after talking to this guy and and listening to the the Finding Bigfoot people, I, I realized, you know, I, I had a shot to actually see one in Oklahoma, which was really kind of amazing to me. I just uh, wasn't expecting that. And... Uh, I worked for this oil company, drove a truck, and at this particular time, this is this is uh, 2015. I uh, my night dispatcher sent me on a locate to a location. It was about six o'clock in the morning, and I got there. I'd been there lots of times, numerous times, so I was familiar with the area. I was familiar with all the surroundings there. And had never, ever experienced anything weird, never seen anything, never heard anything. And uh, I get to the location, and I'm sitting in my truck, and, and I decided to get out of the truck and get my tools and, and start doing my job. And when I got out of the truck and my feet hit the ground, every hair on my arm stood up. And uh, I thought, man, that's, that's kind of crazy. And so I, the first thing that went through my mind is like the first or second day of deer season this is the month of November. And so I, I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to walk around the location a little bit and make sure that if somebody's out here deer hunting, he's going to see me and know that not to shoot my way. So uh, that's what I did and didn't see anything, didn't hear anything. So I thought to myself, man, I'm, I must be losing my mind or something, or I'm really tired after working all night. So I went ahead, started my job, and I got back in the cab of my truck and was sitting there writing out a ticket. And as I'm sitting there, uh, in my peripheral vision, I see movement in front of me. And so I look up, 
And to try to put, paint a picture of what that area was like, it's, it's got a lot of sand dunes on it. It's real close to the river, Cimarron River. And this had a sand dune there. There was a big cottonwood tree, a dead cottonwood tree that was kind of stuck in, in that sand. And uh, plus we have wild sand plums that grow in this area quite a bit. And there was wild sand plum thickets all around this tree and this, this sand dune. And um, I, I look up in that area because that's where the, the, mo- the motion that I, my eyes picked up on came from. And I looked up and I see this face that's sitting over behind this tree or standing behind this tree. And, uh, most of his body was covered up, but I could see his, I could see his head, his face real clear. And I could see, uh, his shoulders. And I picked up my phone, uh, thinking pretty quick on my feet. I, I picked up my phone and snapped a couple pictures, uh, put my phone back down and I sit there and watched, watched it. Uh, never saw it move. I didn't make a sound. Uh, it was like I was looking at a statue, and at that point, I thought, man, I must be really delirious because I'm, I'm seeing stuff. I, it didn't even come to my mind what I was actually looking at until after after it happened, but I, I thought, man, I, this is crazy. So I get down out of my truck, uh, get my tools and stuff, and put everything back in my truck and get back in the cab. I start to drive off, and when I start to drive off, I look up again, and this thing is gone. Uh, never saw it move, uh, never heard it move, didn't make a sound, and I knew right then what I had seen, and I thought, holy cow, this is this is awesome. This is what, what I've always wanted, you know. I've always wanted to see one, and from – so at that time – I, I became really hooked with the whole subject matter again. And um, I, I had listened to Sasquatch Chronicles a lot, and Bob Garrett was on the show, and they they were starting to put out expeditions uh, into the big thicket. Well, I, I definitely wanted to go. Um, so I called them, talked to them, and and they interviewed me on the phone to see if I was a good candidate to come. And this was the very first expedition that they put on there. And uh, got a phone call the next day, said, you're you're coming. And uh, so I made plans. And two months after I had my first sighting, I went on my very first expedition uh, down into the big thicket. Real real quick question. um, before mm-hmm. we get too far into the big thicket, the one that you saw, I just want to get a little bit of detail on it. Did you pick up anything as far as like the color of the hair, the the face or size or anything sure. like that? Sure. Um, the hair color was black. And, and that's what stood out to me when, when I looked over there. Um, I, the face was not, didn't have any hair on it at all. Uh, the face was a char- charcoal-colored gray color, uh, but the hair was around his head and on his shoulders and his arms was black. And that's the only thing that I saw. I saw probably from 
his chest up to his head. And, uh, I don't know, I, I don't know how tall he was or how uh, he was big. I could tell that he was very muscular on his upper body. Um, but I didn't, I couldn't see his legs or anything below his chest. And by the time I turned around and got back in the truck and started to drive off and looked up there one more time, that's when I, I realized I, you know, I could have seen this, this thing walk away and, and didn't get that chance, but I don't know. I don't know how big he was. I, I could tell just from, he was only probably, I'd say, 20, 30 yards from me when I saw him. And, um, I, uh, like I said, I don't, I don't know how big he was or anything like that. And there's, there's, there was no way to get tracks or look for tracks in that area because that sand is so fine. It's uh, river sand. And, uh, I mean, it's almost like powder. And so when you leave a foot impression in that sand, it, it pretty much covers itself back up almost instantaneously unless it's That's raining. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I didn't mean to draw you away from the big thicket. That's the interesting stuff. So go ahead, and uh, I'll let you continue on with that. Okay. So uh, after two months of having this first sighting, I, you know, like that that passion that I had when the, when I was a little kid kind of came back almost immediately when I saw the one that I saw, and so I. Uh, made this trip two months after my first sighting uh it was the month of november uh no it wasn't i'm sorry it was uh february it was the first week end of february when i went to the big thicket and being from oklahoma i i knew where the big thicket was and i thought you know hey it's going to be i'm going to be closer to the equator it's going to be warmer um, cause we were having a pretty cold month that year. And so I, I didn't go prepared for the cold temperatures there and about froze to death, but, um, the big thicket that, that was an amazing experience for me. Um, I had, I casted my first track there. Um, I also had several sightings while I was there. One of them was a, a night sighting. Uh, there was a there was a right away where the oil and gas company had come in and laid some oil and gas lines. And uh, of course, on the right away, they they have to have at least a ten foot swath to, that has no uh, high grass or trees or anything like that in there. And we went on a night hike down this right away. Uh, they split us up into two groups, and there was twelve of us. 10, 10 people who signed up for it and they had two guides with us and uh we went down the right away and as we're walking down the right away we'd we'd walked a pretty good ways uh we heard a couple whoops around us and uh which was really neat uh wasn't expecting that and we got to a certain point in this right away where there was a great big deadfall um cottonwood tree i mean it was huge it was probably two maybe three feet in diameter and it was laying right there by the side of the right away and we decided we were going to stop for a minute and take a little rest and so we did and 
let me back up just just a hair. The night that night was dark, dark, dark. I mean, it was it was pretty dark, and half of us had Gen three night vision or Gen two night vision, and the other half had uh, thermal imagers. And so, as we we get to this tree, the two guides are in front of me, and I was right behind them. And I walked over to where that that tree was, the deadfall tree, and there was a gap in between the the end of that deadfall tree and uh, the tree line. It was about probably a three or four foot gap that kind of went into the woods, which in the big thicket when you're down there, it's like, especially at night, when you're walking down a right away like that, it looks like you've got walls on both sides of you, except for this one spot. And I kind of walked over to that spot and I had Gen 3 and I looked and there was one that was on all fours, uh, probably no more than six, seven feet from me. Um, this, this one was big. He was a big boy. Uh, this thing even on all fours, his head came up to my chest and he was rocking back and forth like a gorilla. And that was the first time I'd ever experienced anything like that. I didn't know what it meant, but the the guy behind me had a thermal and I said, Hey, I got something up here. Come check it out. And he, he walked up behind me and got behind me and he picked it up on the thermal too. And about that time, uh, there was about five guys on the other side of of the right-of-way. And they said, hey, we got something over here, too. So I turned over to their direction. And when I did, I saw one walking parallel down the tree line where these guys were walking. And uh, our guide came up to us and said, hey, guys, guys, we're going to have to be real careful because they're trying to flank us. Well, I didn't know anything about what they do or how they do it. And so I, I really didn't really put two and two together until afterwards of what they were telling us. So after seeing the one on the other side of the uh, right away, I turned back to the one I was looking at and he was still there and still rocking back and forth like a gorilla. And uh, I sit there, we stood there and watched him and all of a sudden he took like three steps backwards and turned and was gone. And it was the fastest thing I've ever seen in my life. I mean, this thing booked it. And so that, that was one of the night experiences that I had there. Um, I had another experience that I, for the longest time, I thought I'd either dreamed it or imagined it. Uh, that night was really, really cold. When, when I got there on the Friday afternoon, it was 51 degrees. And, and, uh, by the time it got dark and get, got time for bed, the temperature dropped to 23. And, um, I, I wasn't prepared for that. So I ended up, I, I slept in my pickup that night. 
Um, well, one thing I was very interested in when I went down there was audio. And so I had put out recorders probably a hundred yards away from camp, all the way around camp. And, uh, that night about probably two o'clock in the morning, I would guess just an estimate. Um, I heard, oh, well, I didn't hear, I was asleep, but I recorded, uh, some yells and screams that that's probably considering some of the audio that I've heard before, this is probably one of the best. And I think it was probably three or four uh, of them at one time. And one after another, they, they screamed. Um, Well, like I said, I was asleep at the time and at three o'clock in the morning uh, I was awakened and I, I didn't know why I woke up. And I was laying there on my seat. My my head was on the passenger side. My feet were on the, or my head was on the driver's side, and my feet were on the passenger side. And uh, I set up. I was going to look out the passenger window. And I set up. When I set up, I looked out the passenger window, and right in my passenger window was this huge face. Um. The only way I can describe it is that it had a snarl on his face. Uh, I could see his teeth, and the teeth that he had were, uh, you remember the old gum uh, that they used to make called, well, I think they still do, it's called chiclet gum. You guys familiar with that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, that's what his teeth looked like. I mean, they were huge, but it was the same size as chiclet gum uh, i mean the same style and on the side of his mouth i saw canines and i i thought to myself oh crap what am i gonna do um and i the only thing i could think of is just lay back down and close your eyes and act like you went back to sleep so that's what I did. And I laid there for a few minutes and then eased my way back up and uh, looked out the window again and it was gone. And like I said, for the, for, for the longest time, I thought that I had either imagined it or dreamed it. So the more and more I thought about that, the more and more I realized that, yeah, what I saw was what I saw. Um, and it really didn't, I'm not going to say it, it didn't freak me out. It did freak me out a little bit because like the thing that kept going through my mind was, man, if this thing wants me, he's fixing to get me. Um, but it never happened. So that, that took place. And like I said, I casted my first track there. Uh, it was a 14 inch track. And it, what was interesting about the print was the pinky toe on the track was bent toward the heel, uh, like it had broken its pinky toe at one point in time. So it was a pretty unique cast. Unfortunately, over the years of hauling that thing around, it, it finally went broke apart, which I was pretty devastated by that. But, um, since then I've, 
casted other tracks, uh, casted good tracks. Uh, I spent a lot of time in the Kaimichis in southeastern Oklahoma, uh, down by Honabee, which I know you guys are probably familiar with Honabee and, and the siege of Honabee. And uh, I have access to a log cabin, a friend of mine that has uh, a cabin down there. And I go down there quite a bit. And um, I've seen several since then, um, not just there. I've seen another one here in Oklahoma. Uh, it was on a creek bed. I had uh, one, you know, when you when you get into this subject and you and people start to realize what you're doing, some of them think you're crazy and some of them laugh at you. And then some of them go, we need to talk to you. And, and that's kind of what happened on the one uh, here that was only about a mile from me. I had three people come to me because they knew what I did, what I was doing. And they said, Hey, uh, we're seeing monkeys on the Creek. And I said, you, you're not seeing monkeys on the Creek because we don't have no monkeys here. And I started going in that area and looking around and I found a 15 inch track on the Creek. And, uh, I kept driving through there time and time and time again. And one day I was driving through there, had a friend with me and I, uh, the weather conditions were, it was pretty misty and pretty cold. And I was driving down the road that went beside where this wood line was and where the Creek was. And all of a sudden I, I thought I need to stop and uh, I pulled off the road and, and stopped and got out my 35 millimeter camera and started zooming around the wooded area down by the creek and sure enough I'd come across one that was sitting and uh, in a big brush pile and uh, took a picture of that and like I said that was only a mile from my house and you know, there's there's been several occasions. Uh, I've also been to Land Between Lakes in Kentucky and Tennessee. Uh, did some, spent a, a week there. But anyway, um, Land Between the Lakes was fun. Um, actually took a picture at Land Between the Lakes, a couple pictures actually, that um, I took that I, Bob Garrett told me a long time ago that if you go out in the woods, one of the things that you, you got to know is don't, don't just take pictures all the time. Uh, he said, there'll come a time somewhere on your trip. If they're there, you're going to get this feeling that you need to start taking pictures. And he said, when you do that, he said, nine chances out of 10, you're probably going to see something and you're probably going to get a good picture of it. Well, one of the pictures I got at land between the lake, there was one that, that, that kind of happened to me while I was there. I got the urge that I needed to take a picture. And so I took a couple pictures of that area. And when I got home, I didn't even see anything while I was there, but when I got home and started going through my pictures, sure enough, and I think I sent this picture to you guys. Uh, it's laying under a, a big old brushy tree. And it's a picture of its head. You can see his 
his nose, his eye, uh, his face, the hair on him. And if you zoom in to that picture, you can almost get the color of his eyeball. Uh, it almost looks like it's hazel, um, which is really, it's really a cool picture. But I've, I've done a lot. I've done a lot of stuff with the, the Cheyenne and, I mean, not Cheyenne, um, the Arapaho uh, tribe here. And they have a casino up the road and there's a, uh, they have a, oh gosh, what am I trying to say? Um, anyway, it's Cheyenne and Arapaho tribe has a, they had a radio station and I got involved with them and started a radio program, uh, with their radio. Uh, it ended up being the number one show on their, on their radio. I did that for a while and I kept telling the guys who did the producing, I said, you guys got to give me more than 30 minutes. And they said, why? And I said, because the subject is a pretty popular subject, especially around here. And I said, if you guys let me do an hour long show, I said, I, your ratings are going to go up. And, um, we talked about it and they just didn't think a 30 minute show. They thought a 30 minute show was good enough. And, uh, the tribe ended up, I think they, they lost their funding to the radio station. So, um, I had to kind of go out on my own. I did that. And I started a show called, okay, chasing the beast and, uh, had some pretty good shows two-hour-long shows. Um, got to hear a lot of reports from people from all over the country. Uh, had a lady from Ireland come on the show. Had a guy from Great Britain come on the show. Uh, it was real interesting to see their views and, and for them to talk about some of the things they've seen. And one thing that, that I figured out after jumping all over the map, so to speak, is these things are everywhere. Uh, you just got to know what to look for and, and you'll, you know, if they're there, they'll find you. Uh, that's happened to us several times. We, we do a lot of stuff around the red river, um, do some exploring out there and we've had really good luck there. And I've been to Alabama, uh, had a trip in Alabama. That was a pretty amazing trip. Um, had pebbles thrown at us that night at our camp bar. Um, none of the pebbles hit us, which I, I think if they want to hit you with something, they're going to hit you with something. But they let us know that they were walking around the camp because we were sitting by the fire and every now and then we'd get a pebble thrown at us. But, um, you know, that's, I, I keep doing what I'm doing. Although I haven't done the show in quite a while, when COVID hit and they kind of locked down the national forests around us and wildlife management areas, uh, I got really depressed about all that and couldn't do what we normally do. <laughs> Excuse me. And so we we kind I kind of drifted away from that stuff. But uh, now things that are easing up a little bit, we did a trip last year in April uh, at Honeby and 
we stayed there a whole week and it was, uh, that was an amazing trip. Amazing trip. And we're planning on doing it again this April. We're going to go back down there, spend another week down there and see if we can find some more evidence and maybe get a sighting or two and kind of go from there. You know, the first one you saw, that was fast, or at least I want to go back to the one that was in the big thicket on all fours. Mm-hmm. And now you're looking at this thing, what, through thermal or night vision? Night vision. Night vision, okay. Three. So what's going through your head when you see this thing and it's rocking back and forth? Because that usually means they're provoked, they're agitated. Uh, angry, right. <laughs> and he's six feet away. Right. I've, I've, I've learned that. Uh, you know, at the time, uh, the most amazing thing about the ones that I've seen uh, and the experiences that I've had, I've never really felt like I was in any kind of danger. Um, and I, I, I know when I saw that. Uh, I was just in shock that I was that close, number one. But there was so many of us there at the time uh, that could have prevented something from happening. But I, I didn't, I didn't feel like I was in harm's way. I didn't feel like I was in some kind of danger. I really didn't. And I just enjoyed the moment, if you will. <coughs> and. I just, um, I just was soaking it all in, much less, more or less. But now the one that was looking in my pickup at me with a snarl on his face, that kind of freaked me out a little bit. But I still didn't feel like I was in some kind of harm's way. Yeah. Well, you got you got a barrier between him and you and mm -hmm. let's face it you know maybe it's only glass but it's you know it's something he's on the outside and you're on the inside sure right if you guys got questions for me ask away well that was um kind of the first one was you know the the one that's on all fours because uh we've got a guy that we've had on the show uh tw and he's talked about one that was um, well, he didn't see it, but a, a kid that was on a bike saw it. It was on all fours and scared the kid and threw the bike in a tree. Right. I remember that story, actually. Was that was that down there in Texas where that happened? Uh, Las Cruces, New Mexico. Okay. Okay. But yeah, I I I, I love talking about this stuff, and and I got story after story after story uh, that I could tell, but it'd probably take a three-hour show uh, for me to get some of the stuff that I've seen and done and experienced. And, um, you know, I can I can tell you a story that happened down at on, on the Red River. Uh, and, Will, I think I, I've talked to you before uh, about some things that we had encountered up in northwest Oklahoma, actually. Um about finding some mounds. And yeah, let's hear the about mounds it. That, uh, the mounds that we found there, 
were deep in the woods. Um, there's no way that a guy coming there with a bulldozer or a backhoe or anything like that, because this is pretty, pretty thick area. But these mounds are probably, I would say, nine to ten feet long. Um, they they stand up about two to three feet high and two to three feet wide. And when I when we first found them, uh, I mean these mounds were everywhere. I mean they were everywhere in the woods. And when when we first found them, I we took a bunch of pictures. Uh, this was kind of in broad daylight, and we uh, we noticed that I actually had a thermal imager with me uh, that I attached to my phone, and I turned that sucker on, and behind us, about probably 35 or 40 yards, we counted uh, seven individuals. Uh, four of them were obviously adults, and three of them were juveniles. And they were, they were definitely watching us. And uh, I, I've always thought that these, whatever these are, um, are pretty sacred to them. And I actually took those pictures and, and talked to the chief of the uh, Cheyenne and Arapaho tribe and showed him the pictures. And I asked him, I said, what, what are these? And he goes, well, they're, they're burial mounds. He said, but they ain't ours. And, uh, he said, ours aren't that big. He said, but that's that's definitely what it looks like to me. And he said, have you ever messed with them? I said, no, not at all. I said, we don't, we don't touch them. I said, the only thing we do is take pictures of them. And uh, he told me, he said, well, we got ground penetrating radar at the trod. He said, we can schedule some appointments to go out there and, and run ground penetrating radar over them and, and see if there's anything in them. And, uh, so we had set up and at two different times, we had set up to, for them, for those guys to come out with us, uh, to this area so we could do that. And every time that's come up, uh, they have to, something comes up and they can't go. So <laughs> that's kind of a, a downer for us, uh, because we, we'd like to know what's there, uh, if anything. But we've had had a lot. Uh, have you been back to? I just want to jump in real quick, uh, Chuck. Have you had a chance to go back and verify the mounds are still there? And if so, what, when was the last time uh, you guys went out there and took a look at them? Um, it's been probably a year, year and a half since I've been out there. Uh, the mounds are still there. Uh, they haven't they haven't been disturbed or anything like that. I know one mound that we came upon. Uh, there was a hole in the mound, and laying probably five or six feet away from the mound was a rabbit, and um, that rabbit had been torn to pieces. So, um, I you know I I can't say for sure what broke that rabbit in half but something did uh, i kind of have a feeling i know what it was but i and and that's another thing that i think that makes me think that the best thing to do when you come across something like that is leave it alone um because i think they 
that is a, a sacred spot to them, and I think they don't um, they don't like you messing with them. So, but yeah, they're still there. So, and you they, said that there's a there's like a hole that's in the mound. Is it like in the middle of the mound? And um, tell me a little bit about that. Like, I, how big is the hole? In other words, does it look like a rabbit hole or? Yeah, that's exactly what it looked like. It looked like this rabbit had probably dug in there to make a den or something. And uh, like I said, you know, five feet away from the mound was this rabbit that had been ripped apart. And uh, it wasn't a coyote or something like that because it, it wouldn't have left it wouldn't have left it if it would have been a coyote. So, so you you think maybe but it, it may be associated with uh, digging a hole in the mound and they found it objectionable and took care of the rabbit. Absolutely. Okay. Oh, interesting. I, I don't know if, uh, Will, I don't know if you've ever come across anything, but we, we've also, in several different locations, do um, you guys know what a horse apple is? It's called a horse apple. Uh, it's a seed pod from a bodark tree. Uh, bodark, or they, they also call it a um, Osage orange tree. It's got several different names, but we have we have those trees in our area quite a bit. And the seed pod is is about the size of a softball or a baseball, and it's got the outside of this thing is lime green and it looks like you're looking at a brain, but it's round. Uh, it's got like grooves in it. And I, my grandparents used to collect them and they put them in their closets to keep, uh, insects and moths away and spiders. Uh, it's, I, I don't know if it's, there's something in it that, drives them off or if it I don't know how, how it works but it does work because my grandparents I grew up with them well up here in northwest Oklahoma where the mounds were there's a couple of horse apple trees around there and me and one of my research buddies uh, went out there one time and we took a guy with us that he's a pretty big skeptic he, he's not really a believer and we were walking down a trail and showing him all these wood structures that we found out there and, and they're they're everywhere out there. And uh every time we'd walk up to one and show it to him, he'd say, Oh, that's flood damage. And I'd look at him and I'd say, Man, there hasn't been a flood here in a hundred years. What are you talking about? It's not flood damage. And when we find wood structures like that. We, we look at them really close. I mean, we look for axe marks, or we look for chainsaw marks, or we look for twine, or we look for wire, or any of that kind of stuff that puts these structures together. And if we find anything that looks suspicious like that, <clears throat> we, we dis discount it. So everything that we find that that doesn't have any of that stuff on there, we take pictures of it and look at it really close. Well, as we're walking down this trail, 
and like I said, we're showing him these structures, and he keeps telling me, oh, it's flood damage, it's flood damage. And I I just kind of disregarded what he was telling me. We're walking down this trail. I'm in the front. He's in the middle, and my research partner's in behind me. And as we're walking down this trail, all of a sudden, this horse apple or the seed pod of, of this tree comes flying over the top of our heads and hits a tree in front of me and lands at my feet. So I reach down, I pick it up, and I turn it over, and there's a great big, huge bite mark taken out of this horse apple. And I turned to him and showed it to him, and he said, well, I can't explain that, which I thought was pretty funny. But what what started going through my mind was when I was growing up, my grandparents used to always tell us, don't touch those things. If you see them, don't touch them. Don't take a bite out of them. Even though it's called a horse apple, it's not really an apple. Just leave it alone because they're poisonous. Well, I started thinking about everything my grandparents had taught me about these, these horse apples. And then I got to thinking about what, we were, what had happened there with the bite mark taken out of it. And I was thinking to myself, well, if this thing is really poisonous, number one, how, how are they taking a bite out of it and getting away with it? Well, the more and more I thought about it, the more and more I thought, well, what they're doing or what I assume they might be doing is they're, they're biting into these things and then rubbing it on their skin to keep the bugs and the insects away from them. I don't know if that's a legit synopsis, but I kind of feel that's what they're doing. Well, that, and you know, that I actually, kind of, no, I, I was just going to say that kind of, that kind of makes sense. And, you know, honestly, another possibility is, um, you know, maybe what's poisonous to us isn't necessarily uh, toxic to them you know we just we don't know at this point but um, we're, right. we're running short on time but what I'd like to do is get you back to talk about some of the other experiences that you've had and and some of the other um, you know encounters and um, so we got to get you back on the show Chuck I got to say I really appreciate it and uh, apologize, we had some technical issues. It happens once in a while, but uh, it was uh, very much uh, an interesting show. We really appreciate you coming on. Not a problem. Anytime, guys. In Bigfoot history, Three Sisters Wilderness Area, 1950s, Oregon. The San Francisco Chronicle, December 7, 1965, carried the following story. A set of fuzzy photographs of what is purported to be the monster man-animal roaming the Pacific Northwest wilderness were uncovered yesterday in a San Francisco camera shop. If authentic, the photographs would be the only ones ever taken of the hulking ape-like creature whose hideous screams have terrorized a score or more outdoorsman from California Sierra to the forest of Washington. The photographs were brought into the camera shop for processing more than five years ago by a grizzled woodman 
who told a wild story of being stalked by a hairy monster in the Three Sisters Wilderness of Central Oregon. The woodsman gave his name as Zach Hamilton, and he never returned for his finished films. Dick Russell, assistant manager of the Brooks Camera, 45 Kearney Street, said he was reminded of the old woodsman's eerie tale and the unclaimed film by the Chronicle's account last week of the current search for the giant man-animal. Russell said he had first examined the film three years ago, and quote, I got prickly all over when I realized they were the pictures the old-timer had said he had taken in the brush. I never saw anything like them. All right, we're back from the break, fellas. Let's uh, let's go ahead and dive into some questions. Uh, Milo, let's start with you. <laughs> okay. Uh, I was ready for that. <laughs> you, you were ready for that or you weren't? I, I wasn't. Okay, we'll go to Brian then. You can you get your get yourself together and we'll start uh, with Brian. Okay. Brian, are you there? Tell you what, I am going to jump in, guys. Okay. All right. So we got a lot on the radar screen today, and we've got a gentleman here, Eugene. He wants to know, he says, hi, really big fan of the podcast. So uh, thank you for that. And we love it when people contact us through questions at creekdevil.com. He says, I've often wondered theoretically how and if COVID would affect Sasquatch and how bites from a venomous snake could affect them says, granted, I realize we can only speculate, but um, just want to know he's a big fan. And apparently, he just puts a side note here, he's living in a household that doesn't believe the creatures exist. So um, he has to live with that burden. <laughs> but, um, and that's a good question on what do we know or what can we speculate about the medical condition and how these creatures might deal with uh, I don't know, medical emergencies in their world. Well, I'm we don't sure. really know, but we can speculate, right? I'm sure like a lot of animals, you know, they, they're in tune with things that are somewhat medicinal for themselves. I mean, like, you know, cats and dogs eat grass for stomach problems, things like that. So I'm sure they're aware of that kind of stuff. Um, we don't get reports of them, you know, being seen sick or, you know, incapacitated like that. So either they don't have things that affect them much or, you know, they're hiding somewhere when they do. So we really don't know. I guess we need a, uh, maybe we can get KD to come on sometime since he's a, a medical doctor and could maybe address some of that more specifically. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And, and also, even though, um, and I shouldn't call it, uh, <clears throat> the name that I just used for that, uh, pandemic, we'll just call it the my Sharona. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, the physiology is certainly quite different with these creatures. So who knows? You know, maybe maybe that's they don't have the receptors. They just don't get it. Maybe they do. Well, you got to um, remember, too, they don't have a great deal of contact with humans, you know, anyway. Exactly. So it, it's unlikely that they would be in a position, at least for the most part, to contract something like that if they could. And we don't know if they can because their constitutions are pretty strong. I mean, they eat garbage and everything else. So, well, 
unless they sneak into somebody's house that has it and touch one of the surfaces that has that virus on it. We'll just leave it at that. <laughs> okay. Milo, are you ready? Yeah, I've got some questions here. You know, when when uh, they say it's a foul, when, when they have one that comes around that has a, a foul odor, how many different kinds of uh, descriptions of that odor have the people been coming up with? You know, it's really hard for people to, and even myself, <clears throat> I've right. actually smelled it one time and, and I couldn't put an actual description to it because it was unlike anything I'd smelled in my past. So, and I've worked in some pretty dirty environments over the years. So, yeah, you know, I've had exposure to a lot of different kinds of smells and, and it was unlike anything, you know, but if people, you know, they try to explain it with what's in their toolbox and oftentimes right. I got that. Yeah, I mean, they'll put a lot of different labels to it, and but it's still never exact, you know, with what they're using. So, um, you know, without it having a clear example for people to use, you know, we get lots of different ways of describing it. You know, because I wish that I could remember what I smelt when we were in at Clark's Ranch. Mm-hmm. You know, because, you know... At the time, I didn't think about it. I was like, God, everything stunk. You know? so, <laughs> I thought maybe you were going to say Paul, but. <laughs> well, you know, I was, but I didn't know if I should. <laughs> yeah, it's probably better not. Well, you're right. I mean, yeah. and, and I don't recall. I mean, I guess my attention was focused elsewhere. I don't remember smelling much then. It wasn't wasn't a focus of mine. I was more listening, you know, and, and well, kind of on the edge. Well, talks like it's so strong. Well, you know? I'll, I'll use my and example. Then, okay. You know, Jack and I were, we got a call. And this is over in Skamania County. I don't remember what year. It was probably 1992 or 93 time frame. So we went over there, and it was near a fish hatchery. Not real close to a fish hatchery, but that was the reference point I'm using. It was actually a couple <laughs> miles away from that. And um, we went to the location where this person said they seen this creature. And it was rainy, and usually when it rains, you know, that kind of suppresses a lot of odor in the air. Um, so we got out of the truck, we walked on this road. I said, well, I want to see if we can see anything instead of driving over potential evidence. So we didn't walk very far, and we walked into a wall of stink that made us wretch. I mean, we were about ready to throw up, and, and we, we hurried up and walked out of it. And I said, I want to test something. So I immediately turned around, I walked back to the location. When I got back there, it was gone. The air was completely clean, which is really mm. bizarre because, um, you know, if it was a dead animal or something nearby, the smell would yeah, stay there. Yeah, it would stay. Yeah, it would still be there. There was no wind. It was very calm, and, and it was raining. And I started looking around, and just inside the tree line nearest to us, there was a lot of thick moss on the ground, and I found a, a spot that was probably, oh, I don't know, between two and three feet in, in diameter where something had flattened all that moss down and it just happened. So, you know, we assume based on the report and this odor and this mashed down moss that one of the creatures had been there and was watching us and at no more than 20 or 30 feet from us. You know, I want to back up the truck for just a second here. Well, you said something that really is uh, a very descriptive of how you deal with or how you try to interpret this smell and that is when 
well, two years ago, or back in 20, August 20, when I ran into, you know, with two other guys, you know who they are in that area that you know where it is, right? That meadow. Right. We ran into the creature, and it was what triggered us was the smell. Mm-hmm. And you said uh, a real good uh, analogy in that there's nothing in our toolbox. And that's what we, the three of us, were discussing is it smells like something dead, but not quite. Uh, would you, you just couldn't put your finger on it because, <clears throat> excuse me, it was a totally new and unique smell. The only thing we'd come close to, and it was nasty, was like something dead and rotting, but not, it wasn't. It wasn't quite the same. So, but I just wanted to say that was a good analogy is that it's such a unique smell. It's not in your toolbox. Well, and here's a good example, too, to go along with that. If, you know, we look at DNA, and there's lots of, you know, thoughts out there about DNA, but realistically, you have to have a known sample in the system to compare it to to be able to say definitively that's what this is right otherwise uh what they do is they'll they might it might come up as something you know the nearest thing to it but now let's take a look at that for a second the nearest thing to it could be such a gulf in between what they're using as the nearest thing and what the actual thing really is you know what i mean like like with these creatures you might say well you know it's it's um, unknown primate. Okay. Or it might be similar to human. Okay. Just like with chimps. Okay. With chimps share 98% of the, the same DNA that we do. But that other couple of percent is such a huge gulf that, you know, people misconstrue that all the time. And it's kind of the same way with describing odors or vocalizations. You know, you can try, you don't have the you don't have the tools in your toolbox to get a, a really close definition, you know, of what you're talking about. So you use the nearest thing you have, but it could be so far off that a listener who's unfamiliar with it might be, you know, they have no clue what you're really talking about. Well, you know, it's a, it's a good analogy that when you say a shared, because you hear that from time to time is, and we don't know how accurate these so-called DNA reports are, but they'll say, X percentage of this Bigfoot DNA was analyzed and X percentage they share DNA with humans. Well, DNA is kind of a, uh, you know, I'm not an expert and I'm not a geneticist, but I mean, it's it's a very broad kind of an umbrella term because you've got different types of DNA. Right. So, um, you know, and, and like the chimpanzees, you say we have shared DNA. And at least in my mind, I've wondered, well, what does the shared mean? Um, you know, just, just is it identically or I, is it similar? You know, I think we should probably have John and Forrest on again to talk about that specifically because they would know, they would know. They'd have the knowledge to kind of pin that down a little better. We're going to hit him with that. Absolutely. And, and again with KD because he was a, a you know cancer researcher and he's a medical doctor. So he would have some great input on that too. Okay, Brian, do you have questions? Uh, yeah, can you can you guys hear me? Or, we can uh, hear you. Okay, okay, perfect. So I wanted to ask about the speed of these creatures because we, we have reports of them, you know, being able to, like, 
go like 45 miles an hour or like or even more so what, what's your take on that they move very quickly uh, and that's that's been written about for many 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 years uh, and told to us by witness accounts and I'll, I'll give you a couple examples you know years ago I interviewed a couple of police officers in Texas uh, canine officers and they were en route with two uh, patrol vehicles had their dogs in each one and they were going and one of the officers said around 80 miles an hour he felt and he didn't look at the dial to see exactly how fast he was going but they were cruising pretty quick and this creature came running diagonally out of the dark towards them it was nighttime and then paralleled the first cruiser for a few moments and then veered off uh, the second one was actually a much more accurate you know uh, calculation of the speed of the creature Lee who's been on the show before took me to a location north of here a couple hours and uh, he took me out and showed me this big open field and he said he said he saw one of these creatures and there's a fence line so he we marked where he saw with his watch that where the creature first saw the creature and it was running across this open field along the fence so he marked the, the start time from the one post and then across this field to where uh, one of the last posts was and he stopped the time so he calculated the time based on you know how fast it moved and he came up with 45 miles an hour is how quick the creature was moving you know it's funny because the one that I saw it wasn't just fast it was like zero to whatever it was now bear in mind this was in a very deep forest and and i you know kind of using the, the same speed time distance calculations in the forest it went from zero to, to probably somewhere between nine to 18 miles an hour in a second i so, think I, I think it's where some of this paranormal thinking comes from because they move so un what seems to us unnaturally fast but you know they're a wild creature they move fast. Right. And, you know, well, just real quick, there's a there's stories of, like, um, sailors from, you know, from the 18th century that have been marooned on an island. And when finally, you know, maybe a year later, a ship comes along and they rescue the guy, they are astounded at how fast this person can move just they said it was incredible yeah well because they're constantly on the move constantly exercising yeah like most wildlife i mean they're it's kind of built into their what they are you know it's kind of a requirement for the environment they live in yeah and it's it's a trait that I've kind of lost over the years well you know again i've said this many times before humans we've created this in, uh, this artificial environment around ourselves so we've lost a lot of what we were because you know we've gotten lazy in a lot of ways because we don't have to do a lot of the things that we had to that got us to this place milo you got anything um i was i had a, a thought right back then when we were talking oh i was 
listening now that's what was curious because when i was listening to the the show i think it was like 150 or 149 but it had andy on there and he said a moose was hiding behind him because that thing was tracking that moose oh randy in canada right oh randy okay randy i thought it was andy but yeah he was he was but it said like it it just traveled over the road like within one one gallop or gate or i mean it just traveled that far with less steps than we would do so yeah, yeah it was like my god but you know the <laughs> i thought it was amazing that moose knew that you know he wasn't going to outrun it he was just trying to keep obstacles in his way mm-hmm. right right you know so i i i you know when I uh, when I think about how how slow we are when we were in in Clark's ranch, I mean this thing was like right there. So I mean, what if it really? I don't know what it was thinking. I mean, it, if it really wanted this, I guess we'd all be gone. Right, Paul. <laughs> Paul first, though. Paul first. <laughs> but yeah, I was like, I was listening to the speed question, and to me, our travels covered within a short amount of time versus what we would I, would that be a paradigm, you know? Where, but I would like to. God, that. Never mind. I lost my thoughts. <laughs> Tom, what have you got? Well, well, you know, and there's another thing. Not only are they extremely fast, but they're, it's the stealth. How can they move so fast? And, well, I'm going to go back to the Clark Ranch where I believe you're you're examining the tent. And at that moment, behind you, one of these creatures obviously came, came in very close to you. I think you said like three, four feet. And you had no idea until you turned around and saw the tracks there. And they... I just want to make sure I get this chronology right. Those tracks were not there just a moment earlier. Is that correct? Well, okay, oh. here's here's the deal. We'd set up camp. We ate. And we'd been sitting there listening to the screams that were going on, you know. And we didn't know what they were. We were just, you know, very alert. And at one point, Paul decided he was sleepy and wanted to go to sleep. And, and we were like, me and Milo were like, well, you know, we, we better stay awake. Some of us better stay awake anyway, so we split up into pairs. So Milo and I were one team, and, and those two guys were the other team. And and his friend didn't want to go to sleep, so I said, all right, look, just go to sleep. We'll figure it out, right? And I don't think, Milo, I don't think you, the three of us probably wouldn't have slept all night anyway. He was the only one sleepy. Hell no. I wouldn't have. None. So, I was, man, I was geared up. Yeah, no. So he went in there, and then you know we went through the whole thing where he heard the rustling, and then he came running out, and 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 we were just sitting there in front of the tent talking, and then when he came running out, we're like, what the heck, you know? So I said, look, you know, after we questioned him, if something really happened, there has to be proof to me, and and I asked Milo to hand me the flashlight or or somebody, and we looked behind where he said, which was right behind where I was kneeling down, and we found that bowled-out spot. looked like a knee had been pushed into the dirt. And it was pretty big, wasn't it, Milo? Yeah. It, I mean, yeah, it was 
and, deep. It, and then we found the 18 inch. It looked inch. like somebody hmm. pulled a rock out of a hole. It's what it kind of looked like, yeah, but it was impr- it yeah. was pushed in. And uh, and then there were the 18 inch footprints that led from that back into the trees. So we're like, holy crap, <laughs> you know. And and this happened just a couple of feet behind where I was kneeling down at the corner of the tent when none of us never heard anything. You know. So and, and well, the other thing is when I've been listening to these shows, and a lot of it too is like they, I don't know. It it sounds like it's it goes back to the thing with the toolbox, which I really love that analogy. Is that when uh, you know they they come thundering through. Uh, a dense forest with no no effort at all like they're just cruising through it yeah yeah they don't have any problem going through the brush like that you know and here we go i mean i mean i, I walk in I, I walk up and down the stairs and i trip and fall so i mean <laughs> <laughs> you know i'm like there is no way you know how we think that it's we think it's impossible but i mean look at deer i mean everything out there they're they're tuned to that yeah it's it's their living room that's where they live so it's what they do and for their survival it's necessary for them to be able to move like that well you know and here's a milo you had a good point they go through a, a very thick forested area they do it quickly they do it efficiently and for the most part they do it extremely quietly but what i'm wondering is, <clears throat> excuse me, is while they're doing this, you know, they're, if they're being observed doing this, okay, so that's what we're relying on is is our observation and, and witness observations. It would be interesting to go back and look at the exact location because, yes. well, you guys know what I'm talking about. If you have a forest, you do have natural clearing or pathways that may not even be a game trail there's just you know they can navigate around oh sure and and so that's i'm sure that's what they're doing and from our perspective gosh they're going through this you know this thick forest uh like it's like it's not even there but i think they're just utilizing the terrain to their advantage well oh go ahead milo um a thing with that though is they're familiar with it. I mean, exactly. If this if this is their home, their living room, as Will said, you know they're familiar with their travel habits, so they know what, you know. Okay, well these morons are over here. They know the layout. I'm just going to travel. What? Yeah, they know the layout. Yeah, uh, so they got to be familiar with their their terrain. When you look at chimps, you see films of chimps doing thing hunting and stuff like that. You know, they're not running into trees or anything. They know exactly where they are. They know where all these things are. That's that's known to them. Where right. to us, it's just this, you know, brush out there. You know, we're visitors and, you know, we we try. How many people go through the same place, which I really love the idea of that, you know, go back and check it out. Mm-hmm. You know, and and when I, they're I, not there. Yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> or, or take somebody that's slower, you know. Well, of course, that's... right. <laughs> Brian, what do you got in the way of questions? Is Brian still with us? Let's see. Brian is still there. He's muted. 
Well, I'm going to jump in real quick. Okay. I just want to point out something. Milo, you made a real good point that, Sorry. you know, they're very familiar with their their territory and the, and the terrain. But that applies to everything regarding the creatures, including putting cameras out there or foreign objects. And, Will, we've talked about this so many mm-hmm. times, but it, it's worth noting. You know, they're obviously, if they're able to navigate through their environment their backyard not even their backyard it's their living room of course they're going to see a uh, webcam exactly you know trail cam all that kind of thing yeah you know you know i heard i heard on one of your episodes well that you know when patterson and gimlin went out that they wanted to go out for a year to me that's perfect you know i mean but you have to be so I mean, it can't be in and out and then come back in and go back. You got to be out there. Yeah, I, I don't think it was them that wanted to be there a year, but yeah, you know, it's it's been stated before. <clears throat> sure, if you and it's tough if you're going to be out there a year. That's a long time. Well, I, you know, I mean, we are used to what forty day field problems mm-hmm. in the military, and and that was rough. Yeah, no kidding, Brian. You, you got know. what do you got for us? Okay, yeah, so. One of the questions I had is, will these creatures eat anything? I mean, oh yeah, because they they will. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, they're gonna they're gonna fill their diet primarily by hunting. They're going to supplement it with plant material and even garbage. That they'll eat anything. But doesn't anything? kind of disgust them or no i don't think so (laughs) it doesn't apparently so and i always like using an example um there was a place we have one of the areas that's pretty active and uh, we've we found a lot of scat there usually in this one particular time of year august we find a lot of a lot of their scat and jack and i were examining one of these piles of scat one time because it was a pretty big pile and i was just curious to see what they were eating and, you know, when you go to the grocery store, to the produce section, they have those clear bags that you, you pull off the yeah. roll. And, well, one of those bags was inside the poop. So they'd eaten bag and all. They just stuffed stuff in their mouths and ate it. <laughs> you got to love it. I mean, come on now. Were, were they, um, <laughs> <laughs> I know. they can't taste good. I mean, is it releasing the formaldehyde in the bag? I'm just thinking well, it's I'm, just, I'm it's sure bad they were, on a thousand levels. I'm sure it wasn't the bag they were interested in. It was probably whatever was in the material they were grabbing. You know what I mean? Right. Oh, no, exactly. And I'm curious. I wonder if it was like a Yogi Bear thing. No, yeah, it was probably. No, I'm sure it was probably somebody's trash trash container. Oh, okay. That was going. Yeah. So they can them. look inside, they see the food, and they probably don't realize. And that's interesting, Will, because they didn't have the experience or the knowledge to open the bag and pull the contents out. They just shove it in their mouth. And I'll give you an example. Uh, in one of my books, I can't remember which one it is offhand. Um, I think the last one, Bigfoot Evidence. There's some, pic- there's some pictures in there uh, that a lady sent me from her home. And she has these five-gallon containers in, in the back of her house. And they're full of food garbage. And they, they've got the lids on them. And, you know, like they're like paint buckets, right? how hard those lids are to pull off. Yeah. And she had something sitting on those containers. So what happened was it wasn't just some animals getting into this. 
the container, whatever was on top, was taken off. The buckets were taken out, way out into the yard. The lids were taken off, and the contents were eaten. And there are big finger marks, drag marks, on the inside of the buckets where these things had scraped the inside of the bucket out. <laughs> oh, God. So, so they're used to eating things that we would consider kind of nasty. Yeah, they would eat stuff, make a billy goat barf. Right. <laughs> Tom, what do you got for questions? Well, <clears throat> okay, so going back to, excuse me, their, their, their unusual dietary habits, okay. Um, what do you think the ratio is? And we're just, Again, we're jump, jumping into speculation. The ratio between vegetation and protein that these things eat and what they would require. Because it seems like they have a huge caloric, daily caloric requirement. I don't think that's going to be met through strictly vegetation. No. They're going to need a lot of meat. And not just that. It's not the caloric intake. It's the type of material that they're taking in because, you know, being a primate, they're like us. They have large brains. And a large brain requires a lot of fuel, a lot more than, you know, other... Um, animals you know especially predators predators need a, a lot more they have larger brains they, they require more food you know to drive that brain so that means meat because you you eat less you get more benefit from it more energy um, so the so the hunting is going to be a big part of what they do uh, the vegetable material is a supplement and like I said then the garbage is just you know and things not just that but you know, pet food, livestock food, the pets and the livestock themselves, uh, whatever, whatever's their trash, you know, whatever they can, uh, whatever's opportunistic. Yeah. They sound like a shark, man. You know, just like a shark. Yeah. Land you know, sharks. can I ask you uh, like a, a follow-up question? Sure. How intelligent are, are, are these creatures? Well, I mean, because you said like they, they think. And they understand. Well, they have so, to be very intelligent. They're a primate. All primates are, are the most intelligent animals on the planet. All right, here's an example of that. Well, we've you you have pictures where the creatures have taken a carcass of some sort, mm -hmm. like a deer, thrown it fifteen feet, ten to fifteen feet up in a tree. And to me, it seems like, well, wait a second. Why wouldn't you want to just eat that? So I think we've gone into this, but it's it's worth discussing. What would be the benefit and the purpose of doing that? Because you draw other animals into that carcass. So you, mag you maximize one kill into many kills. Right. So you're not going to draw more deer, and deer aren't going to go hot dog. And you've already got... There's the, a dead deer. You've already got the deer, right? So you know that's a meal. So why not... Good Why point. not expand it a little bit? Pick up on some wolves, coyotes, and yeah. whatever else. And here's another point, too, when we talk about intelligence, when I just talked about the ladies' five-gallon containers. You know, they knew enough to remove the objects from the top. They knew something was in those containers, and then he take, took the lids off and ate it. That requires thinking. Yeah, it does. Abstract thinking. Because usually other animals, when they get into things, it's because they can smell what's in them. But these containers were sealed, so they had to have been watching. And they knew stuff was in those that was valuable, and they went and got them. 
the watching is an important part. Well, you and I were talking just before the show about how these creatures can be in an area where the people are. And I'm thinking about your encounter where you encountered these things, but it's, I would think it's almost a certainty that they had been observing your house and you for a lot longer than you ran in before you had a chance to encounter them. Oh, I'm sure. And Milo, you knew what our place was like. Oh, uh, yeah. That barn, the barn was yeah. all open on that side facing the tree line. And right. I remember the, the big metal container my dad had there for he'd get food from the schools, uh, like the throwaway stuff, the food waste, and that's what he'd feed the pigs. So there was, and there was grain, there was all kinds of stuff out there. But, Will, let me ask you, uh, do you think it was the same creatures that have observed you for, for that long? I think it was the same group that would come through that area periodically, twice a year anyway. It's a... You know, that brings up a good thing. You know, uh, I wonder what the frequency of their nomad nomadic routes would be. Depends on their range. You know. Uh, right. I know several different ranges, and the movements are different in each one of them. So it kind of depends so on the terrain. When you say range, are you talking their 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 borders or yeah, their territory their, their, or? their home range? Like I'll give you an example: the the one group in um, uh, south of Mount St. Helens, they occupied about thirty three hundred square miles. That group of four did. Wow. Okay. And they moved in a clockwise pattern throughout that range throughout the year. So, so Will, let, let me ask you real quick. Um, do they return to the same area? They will if it's not disturbed by people too much. But they won't go to the exact same place each year. In other words, they'll come to a feeding area. Now, we'll just use, because I don't have an exact figure. Uh, that's going to require a little bit more in-depth research to, to focus on a group, in which we are, we're planning to do. But uh, for the sake of conversation, let's just say that feeding area, they come in for 14 days, is 10 miles square, okay? They're going to spread out. Each year they come in there, they're going to come to a different part of that 10-mile area. So one year they might be, in, let's say, in the south. The next year they might be in the east. The year after that, they might be over in the western part of that, and so on. They're going to rotate those spots. I can see that. That that kind of makes sense. Yeah. And that's what they kind of like a and, a trapper. And that's what they were doing in that region. So I could get within thirty days of where they would be, but I didn't know exactly where they were going to be because they would alternate these locations they would feed in. That I always found yeah. that interesting. So you were able to forecast within 30 days roughly where they're at. Right. How would you verify they were there? Did you hear them? Did you see them? Did you see the evidence? I usually find tracks and, and stuff like that. Yeah. But I was always behind the eight ball, it seemed like. You know, I could never quite get there when they were when they were right in that spot. And, and well, like, like you said, they, they followed the food. They'd follow right? the food, sure. But, see, they come into an area... And the reason you only stick around for a couple of weeks is because by that time the game becomes aware of their presence. It seemed like the game would even know that they were there when they, oh, here, here comes the crude, you know. I mean, come on. No, they don't know. They're, they sneak and they move in there very quietly. <laughs> yeah, I could, I, well, we were 
Proof of that. And it's another reason for changing those spots. And gorillas move the same way. When they move throughout their ranges, they come into a feeding area and they'll, and they'll change up each year exactly which place they go to within that feeding area. You know, well, that that's an interesting point. I, I never knew that about gorillas. They, they, they'll, you know, follow the food too. Well, not not necessarily following the food, but they, they move throughout their ranges. And it's partly so they don't exhaust right. the food supply in one particular spot. Right. And, and right. it's what got me looking at th- that area that way. And that's, how, that's what kind of got me on to seeing this pattern as it developed. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great point. Um, okay, so my next question is, do they actually chew their food or do they... Like, cause I know like, a, a, like marine animals, they, they don't chew their food. They, they kind of swallow it whole. Well, marine animals are a different, different, uh, whole ball game there. Sure. These guys chew their food. They got very powerful jaws. They eat bone and everything. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So another question I, that I have, uh, cause because Milo talked about this earlier, but about how fast they are. Do you think that they uh, typically walk on two legs, or are they uh, like four legs? Well, it's hard telling what they're. It depends on what they're doing. You know, most of the time, if they're moving, you know, from point A to point B, it's probably bipedally in hunting situations. And again, it depends on the circumstances. Sometimes they they'll go on all fours, and it's probably um, you know, to keep a lower profile if they're moving in on a kill. But we don't know for sure on that, of course. Yeah, that, that's a good point. Um, so, so Tom, when you saw the, these creatures, um, were they walking on, on two legs or four legs? No, it was on two legs. Oh, okay. Yeah, it, it, it was, and it was just really fast. There's, there's, when you look in a forest, sometimes you get like a natural corridor of a lack of brush trees or anything like that. It's not a game trail, just this kind of a, just the way nature sort of, you know, developed. And that's what this was. It was probably 40, 50 yards in this corridor. And it just, I mean, it was just instantaneously just zipped um, through that corridor. So it was just very, very quick. Hey, and, Will. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, Brian. Oh, no, no. I, I was going to say, and, and Tom, how devastating was that experience for you? Well, it wasn't devastating. It was just, um, oh, gosh. I may have Shock. raised it Shock. a little bit differently, <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> It was. It's probably. Ah, I'm sorry. <laughs> that was. That was just shy of the underwear changing moment. Right. <laughs> I like that. Shy of it. Oh yeah. Tom, what do you have for questions? Okay. Um, Danny wants to know about the coloration. We've talked about the redder or browner shades as they get older. 
and the younger ones are are black. He wants an, and this actually kind of dovetails in what we just talked about. What is the youngest black? What is the youngest Bigfoot that we know of not to be black? And it's it's a tough question because you know we don't really know their age. I, I think we could just go by size. So let's I'll just kind of fill in here. Let's suppose we have one that's five or six feet tall. Well, do you have any reports of one that's young? That would be a very young one, obviously. Mm-hmm. That is reddish instead of black. I haven't heard of that. Yeah, but. there's there's been a couple of them. But if you're talking small juveniles, I've never heard of anybody talk about seeing one that wasn't jet black. The yeah. little ones you're talking, you know, under under four feet tall. Yeah, right, right. And I'm just curious what what purpose does it serve to be jet black? Maybe that allows well, them to. It's probably like deer with their with their uh, fawns. You know, have the spots on right. them. It's like camouflage, you know, especially in forested situations. If you're jet black and you don't move, it's great camouflage. Yeah, and they're going to utilize the shadows and that sort of thing. Sure they will. And even especially in places that have been, you know, wildfires are natural. So, you know, if you're in in a place where there are burned out or burnt tree trunks, you'd blend right in. That's a real good point. And how many times we have heard of people talking about, my gosh, that burnt tree trunk stood up and walked away. Oh, yeah. Yeah, many times. See, to us, we look at it and it's, it's just natural. If it doesn't move, yeah, your mind glances over a place and you don't register yeah, you anything. cancel it out. Yeah, you don't register anything because you think that's a burnt, feels your burnt trees. Well, and I had somebody explain to me that our eyes are trained to pick up lateral movement mm-hmm. far more than something moving directly towards you. Right. And I'm just curious. I, actually, this is a kind of a question for Will, for you and Will, in in your military training. Was that something that was taught or emphasized? Oh, definitely. Because when I went to sniper school at Fort uh, down in Texas, um, uh, you you're you're actually you all pick up more stuff on your peripherals than you ever do in your straight ahead, yeah, unless you're you looking right straight through your skull. Yeah, because because that part of your eye is designed to pick up movement. Well, that's funny that you should say that because that is the movement that I saw. It was a peripheral movement mm-hmm. that caught my attention. Yeah, because I because. Well, then it depends on nearsightedness. I'm talking human. I don't know, you know, because unless I really know one, I don't. But, you know, being farsighted, nearsighted, uh, you're, you're all kinds of other stuff. You know, what kind of, you know, 2020 versus somebody who has fog-like glasses on. You know, you're, you're not going to see something unless you're definitely looking for it. Mm-hmm. You know, but... You know, when, uh, now, with, that's why when I was going through sniper school or, or just going through common marksman classes mm-hmm. in the military, you're always constantly moving your head because that way you are going to pick it up. Yeah, it's like as a scout, you know, even in basic training, that's where they yeah. first taught us was to how to sweep areas. And, and there's a certain method methodology behind that so you don't miss things. 
and that was that was my job. Yeah, you know, they did something. It was similar to the Coast Guard, but you're looking for coloration mm-hmm. or discoloration on the water, that sort of thing. And a buddy of mine that was in the Navy was, uh, they were actually trained to, you know, they would have a submarine pass underneath them. And he said, oh, by gosh, you had better see it. They had a <laughs> incentive program. <laughs> if if you don't see it, I'm assuming the army had a similar thing. Oh sure, they really had a motivational. <laughs> it's it's called staying program. alive. That's incentive, you know. It's like oh yeah, okay. Right in training, it's a, it's have, a foot in your backside. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. But I I really I I really I train myself even when I watch movies the same way. I don't really look at. The, the thing everybody wants me to look at, I'm off looking at other stuff in, in a movie. So, I mean, it's constantly that way for me. And then I kind of got away from all that is the part that, ooh, that looks like a good place for an ambush. You know, <laughs> I, I got away from that. Now, not you know, something you need in your living you room. <laughs> what? Unless you're in that kind right. of relationship and we won't go there. <laughs> Ooh, that's kinky. <laughs> How come we don't but, have to go? You know, looking at the... Um, well, well, I'm just going to point out that a lot of times your eyes will focus on the main character in a movie, but you're right. It is more interesting sometimes to pick up on the background details. You know, well, that's, you know what's that object over there? What's Why is that there? That right. sort of thing. But at the same time, it, you're you're actually trying to do that with your peripheral more than you are looking straight at it because you stare at it. And then most people, if you look or, you know, it's like when they train you, God, you know, breathe when you're when you're about to squeeze off around, you know, you're you're your eyes are going to get foggy or that that staring. Oh, what the hell am I trying to say? Here? Here's here's a point, too. We know that chimps, you know, talking to Forrest, and she's an anthropologist, talked about chimps. One of the things they do is they'll stand very still for long time periods. And standing still gets you not noticed. And we know these creatures will do it also because they have the coloration. They're in an upright posture in forests where the trees are mainly vertical. And if they stand still, you know, we go through an area, we don't pay a lot of attention. We're looking at how no. pretty an area is or whatever it is we're doing, and we're not looking for things that might be a threat to us. Like so an excellent point. Yeah, so, absolutely. That, well, we, you know, uh, well to go, go back to that thing where we fool ourselves thinking we're, we're the apex thing out there. You know, we we're think, not. We think we are. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I was coming, you know. Yeah. We think we are, but we're, we... <laughs> But before right, we, so they'll they'll remain absolutely motionless. Yeah, I mean, before we created this artificial environment around ourselves, you know, we were like all the other creatures out there. You know, whatever advantage that came into our perspective, we'd take. It's how we got to be the top. You know, where we were. Mm-hmm. So, so we've lost all that by getting away from it. So well, their reasoning abilities, right? What what was that? Here was some talking over oh. there. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, so they're basically camouflaged in a well, sense. Well, a lot of animals are because of their coloration. 
And I'll give you another example. I used to go, when I was first starting to deer hunt with my dad, we'd drive through areas and he'd have me watch because my vision was better than his. And I could look up through the timber and there were a lot of um, younger trees, you know, and they get really thick when they're, before they start getting big and thinning out because of, you know, other bigger ones overshadowing the smaller ones and kind of killing them off because of the shade. Um, and I would spot, all you'd see is the deer's legs. And they would blend right in with those little trees because they were about the same size and coloration, but I could spot them. But it's a natural camouflage in some of those positions. Fresh eyes. Milo? That's a great point. I mean... What? You got a question, Milo? Well, you know, uh, I I was going to go that way, but I wanted to go... You know... When you talk about when, whenever you do a casting on a, a footprint, have you ever noticed uh, a certain individual that has like a, a a deformity or anything? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's and, it's not as uncommon as people think. Right. Well, I mean, it's it's a footprint. I mean, a fingerprint. I'm trying to say this where you can actually identify a certain individual absolutely. in the group. Feet. Feet are as unique as fingerprints. Okay, there's that's what I'm looking for. Because I mean, and when it comes when, to footprints, when, when it comes to footprints in this subject, that's the real value is identifying individuals. <clears throat> and most people out there don't they don't realize that or they don't consider it. No, they just see a print and then ooh, it's a trophy. Yeah. It, Yes. You know, I'm more interested in identifying individuals and, and seeing what they're doing. I want to know how many are in that group. I don't know. I want to know what they're doing. And then you can identify by the print. Absolutely. So could you tell in a group which one is like the, the alpha no, versus? No, you can't tell. Well, you're not going to tell by footprints. So they're not like uh, some kind of like you know, formations or they traveling or. Well, it depends on what they're doing. I mean, I mean, you'd have to be even, even in a hunting situation. Um, now the alpha might be the one that say if they're, you know, pushing an animal into an ambush, the alpha might be the one, you know, that they're driving the creatures into, or it may not be, you know, it's something we don't really know for sure. Right. I was just wondering by by like the pattern of the footprints in a, a a group. Say like you know you identify it, and then is the the prints kind of like you know you can tell who's trailing and who's doing what. That that's just yeah. curiosity. Usually, usually you don't find them like that. Now the one exception okay. when we have a couple examples, but we didn't have tracks because the train was bad. Um, where when I first found the broken trees years ago and they were leading in a, in a certain direction. And my Indian buddy told me that that was the, that was the big guy, the alpha showing the other ones, which direction to go to the next feeding area. Now, had there been footprints associated with that and there wasn't because the train was too bad. Um, okay. then I could have identified the alpha most likely. You know, that brings up a, an interesting point. Well, and that is it's. It's communication. It's nonverbal communication. Mm-hmm. They're not even there, but they're they're telling the others we're going this direction. Yeah, this is where we're going. 
Yeah, and that brings up another interesting point is I'm I'm just curious, we don't necessarily know, but just how um, how complex or how sophisticated is their verbal communication because we you know we you know we've heard the owls well i suspect it's very complex yes yeah now the question i have there are there people i've seen i've seen people and i'm not using facebook as any um form of (laughs) you know expertise but i see people post stuff and and you you see occasionally people say well this was the male and that was the female and they were doing how do you know that you got a footprint. How, I mean, how do you determine sex based on a footprint? Yeah, you need to support your hypothesis. Yeah, there isn't any way that I'm aware do. of in this particular topic. With a deer and animals like that, yeah, you can do that because there are different, different attributes to the male and female you know, anatomy. But uh, with this, there isn't. Hmm. Well, you're going to have to have proof to even do that to study it. I mean, people, come on, everybody see a deer. I mean, they're in zoos and stuff, for Christ's sake. You know, there's, I mean, of course, we have the Patterson cast. And, yeah. and if you were just to look at that footprint based on the other, I've got a bunch of other casts, you know, I, I'd like somebody to show me the difference between male and female. We know that was a female, but it's indistinguishable from other footprints, you know, in terms of sex. I guess, well, let's move on. Uh, Brian, you got a question? Yeah, yeah. Um, So, actually, kind of taking off your your point just just there, do females have different characteristics than males that that you've seen? You mean on their footprints? Yeah, yeah. No. No, it's, you're not going to be able to tell any difference. Okay, so what about like eyewitness uh, accounts? Uh, is there any difference between the males and females? Well, the eyewitnesses, sure. <laughs> I mean, just I mean, you know, for the Patterson Sasquatch was female because obviously they had breasts. Yeah, you know, and <laughs> and what I saw was most likely a male because it didn't have anything like that, and and the build is different. I mean. Just like with humans, um, if, you, if you look from the back, you know, without the obvious uh, things that yeah. we would look at, um, uh, the bodies, uh, I don't want to say it's not weight distribution, but the center of gravity. The center of gravity is higher in males than it is females. And usually by the by the build, it's obvious. So you could speculate if, you know, one that has, you know, more of its body proportion is above you know, let's say it's navel, then you could assume that was a male, especially if it didn't have any of the other features of females. Uh, same holds true, you know, the other way. If if the center of gravity looks lower, you know, in the hips, that could very well be a female. Yeah. How, how quickly do they grow, though? I mean, like, let, let's say, like, th- there's an infant Sasquatch, and how will she and or he and her grow like how how fast will they grow? i don't have a number but their their growth rate is faster than humans so i, I don't know how faster. i don't know how much faster but it's faster than humans wow i never knew that but... milo you got questions 
<laughs> I don't know how to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> What's another? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, uh, no, not right now. I'm I'm looking. How about you, Tom? We'll we'll let Milo look over his notes. Okay. <laughs> well, again, kind of going back to the uh, sophisticated or complicated um, communications. Do we know of? I'm going to talk a little bit about the rock stacks. What do you, what's your theory on the rock stacks and and the purpose of it? And we're not going we're not talking about rock cairns that you see in the woods that hikers have put out there. We're talking stuff that's so huge, only these creatures could have done it. And well, you've been in those rock stacks. The only thing I, I was looking at some hunting sites and you know discussions going on about hunting. And among some of those conversations, they talked about uh, rocky areas attracting rodents. And, and my thinking was that possibly uh, these were created to attract rodents. It might not be a big meal, but if you're moving through, you know, from one area to the next, it might be a place you could go through periodically, say once a year or whatever, and, and get some snacks along the way, so to speak. Right, fast food. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, exactly. And we're not going to talk about the specifics, but that was some stuff that we saw back in uh, September. We saw some features, terrain features, that would attract a lot of that fast food, and that was an area where these creatures were. You know, that brings up an interesting thing about these I don't, uh, these, these little teepees or, you know, these, the, the, the leaning tree things, maybe it's a trap for us to be caught inside that crap. <laughs> well, I think you're onto something, Milo. Um, <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> uh, we're going to go down a rabbit hole very, very quickly here. <laughs> I, I, I was thinking about that, man, I was like. Man, I hope that's a trap. Really <laughs> well, and, and I'm going to comment on the tree structures. I'm not saying it'd be interesting yeah. if they did do that, if they had a purpose for it. But I know a guy that, you know, oh, man, look at this. They're, they're all over the place, these tree structures. Yeah. And, you know, I've noticed that right after the snow melt, you get tons of tree structures everywhere. Mm -hmm. Right. You know where I'm going with, with this. It's not the creatures. Right. It, right. Is the Nature. snow belt. Yeah. yeah. It, it's it's these are weather. Related. I, I just I, I just I don't know. I just wanted to make sure, I, you know, it's like, God, you know, I, I, I don't know why I get stuck on that one thing all the time. Are we that stupid to think that they would do that? Well, no, of course not. You know, they they. Do things. Everything they do is for a very specific reason. Right. And there's nothing frivolous that these things do. So you have to ask yourself the question: Why would they go through the effort to do something like that? What's the point? Well, you know, to describe some of them and then watch them on TV or you know YouTube or whatever. It, you know, they're they're intricate. I mean, it looks like a, a person took their time building it. Which is probably exactly what happens most often. 
Yeah. And, oh, look at what Bigfoot did. I found this. Ooh, there there was one that was I, I saw recently, and, and coincidentally, it was right next to a trail. Huh. You know, so uh, <laughs> I, I'm not sure, but uh, it sounds to me like maybe maybe somebody came along and, and made that and just to see what kind yeah. of reaction they would get out of people. Yeah, that's a good point, Will. I saw one on a YouTube channel that I like to watch. Uh, a lady goes out and she just films her, her her trekking through the woods. And she saw one of these things and correctly identified it. Well, look at what some people did. Right, exactly. Right next to a trail. And, and I've used the example before. You know, my a couple of buddies, you know, Milo knows them, Scott and Bill. We, we used to go <laughs> camping. I have a picture. Uh, on my wall with the three of us and it was about the time the Blair Witch movie came out and you know I'm always always a practical joker right so we 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 tarp up the campsite so we wouldn't get rained on and I'd buy this ball of twine every time we'd go and when we were done we'd just cut the twine and throw it in the fire right so whatever it struck me I guess I saw this branch laying on the ground I thought oh I can do this so I made this figure that looks like the ones in the Blair Witch that are hanging up and I hung it above, I hung it in the campsite. And Scott comes along, he says, he starts laughing. He says, you're a bastard. <laughs> you know, so we're all speculating, you know, with the next people. Because when we leave the campsite, you, you know, we leave it so that it doesn't look like anybody was there, right? Except for this object hanging there from the tree. And we're thinking, well, I wonder what the next people come up here are going to think when they see this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, too bad you didn't leave a camera there. Uh, so, you know, so, but you know, the point is, I mean, I'm like, right. I'm like all these people. I'll do things just to, you know, I, I'm not going to see what somebody else's reaction is to it because we're not going back there with other people are there. But, you know, I'll, as a joke, I'll do things. And I'm sure there are plenty of people that see this stuff on Facebook and they probably think, oh, let me do this and, and probably look at Facebook to see if somebody's taken pictures and posted it. Now, I, yeah. I can say I've been in the mountains all over the West Coast for the past five decades. I have never seen any kind of structure anywhere. Well, that's a good point because in my mind, I'm asking myself, when did this become a thing, right? Yeah, all this stuff Does happened it, after I published my first book when I put the broken trees in there. And I knew that was going to happen it, after I thought I really debated to myself, am wow. I going to publish these pictures or not? And I thought, you know what? I'm the one that found this. So I'm going to have my name attached to it, and and they run they ran with and it and they did yeah yeah they did. Brian, do you have questions? Brian's on mute again. How about you, Tom? Well, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. So, kind of a follow up to that. Uh, did you ever regret um, writing more books after the first one? or No, I, I published eight of them so far, and I'm working on two more now. Yeah, well, and actually, and we're adapting one into a screenplay. So, so I'm just curious, like, if you had your first experience, uh, did you ever kind of regret uh, coming out with their story? No. I think they're fascinating, so I'm I'm glad he did it because how, I mean, to even, you know, 
bring me back into the fold after being gone for 30 years, you know? It was like, man, I'm glad he did it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. You know, I, I don't care what people think. I'm just going to put my stuff out there and... Yeah, it's kind of like yeah. bozoing. I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't, no. I don't make much money from it, but I just, you know, it's something I wanted to do. So, no, well, I, I totally agree with you, and we're going to make this into a movie, and so, this, this is good. It's, it's going to be great. So, yeah, I, I, I think that you're, you're right for like continuing to publish your, your stories because uh, these are so important to everyone that's that's listening right now okay so what do we have for more questions fellas um, let me see let me see I've got uh, I wish I, I, we would get more like on 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 how they travel, like a power, you know, the descriptions are like a powerful rolling gait, a, uh, you know, oh, how, when they, how they walk, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's different. You know, I mean, it's different than the way we move. Okay. It's bipedal, but it's different. Their structure is different. Well, that's what, you know, the, the only one thing is the Roger Patterson film and I can't get enough of it. You know what I mean? To, to watch, to even study how they it would travel. But it looked like it was smooth. I mean, you look at the top part of it, and it doesn't, the, it, or, you know, it, 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 it's, it's traveling a very smooth mm -hmm. from the top, like the bottom is taking all the shots. Yeah, they don't, but the, they don't bob up and down like we do. No, and I, I was trying to really study that. Well, you know, Milo, that's actually a really good point. It's, um, you know, if you look at uh, wildlife and, and wildlife biologists, that they discuss what's called a direct register type of walking, which is where, for example, mountain lions and bobcats will walk, and they will put one footprint on top of the other one. And they do that for stealth and so that they also are not, you know, so they can surprise the prey and also for prey avoidance. And I think uh, foxes do that as well. It's kind of interesting. But here we have a hominid that lives in the forest and it does the same thing. It's one foot in front of the other and not that, uh, you know, not that side by side thing. Um, now I can't do it. You know, I can. I, I'll make three steps and I'm going to fall over. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. it's interesting how they do walk through the forest, and they're so quiet. You know, we, you guys picked up on that at the Clark Ranch, and yeah, Will and I and the gang picked up on that here in Oregon, where you just hear a little snap here and there, but it was, uh, it was very quiet, very, very, very subtle. You could easily miss it. Yeah, you know, these things can move extremely quiet or when they want to be noticed, they'll they'll come just blasting through an air and make all kinds of noise. Well, see there there's the part that I like that they watch us to see what reactions of the group 
that they're they're surveying you know i mean if you got a group of people out there and they want to see the reaction of them that that to me is a big part of their i don't know well each their, group, each their personality yeah, each group has its own levels of experience and their disposition so when they see a group of us they're constantly assessing us you know and they seem to be real good predictors of our behavior right they are they seem to know what we're going to do yeah absolutely i think it's because we behave in predictable ways we do and a lot of a lot of people do the same kinds of things um you know we we fall into patterns very easily and that's one that's one thing i tell people when they ask me how to if they've got a you know see the creatures around their home and they want to get rid of them one of the things you have to do is change up your patterns you have to be unpredictable that really throws them off Yeah, it does. And there are some other things that we've, well, you and I have talked about in the past that will, um, it doesn't intimidate them, but it kind of sets them off balance a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. And so they do, they're watching us. I think they're watching us far more often, far more often than we give them credit for. It's like we, it's like, for us to hear that somebody found one, it's by chance. It's not, or is it? You know, maybe they're doing it this. They, hey, you, you're the lowest ranking one. You go out there and just, and we'll watch, see how they act to you. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think it's, yeah, I think there are sometimes when the creatures, I don't want to say make a mistake, but you know, you hear some accounts where it sounds like. You know, the distance and that sort of thing, it's probable that the creature is not aware of the humans, but like Will has said time and again, you know, like Patty film, prime example, and these other ones where people said, yeah, I just saw it walk across the road, or it walked right, you know, it was within sight of me. Mm -hmm. It's a distraction. It's luring you away. It's drawing attention to itself because it knows you're there. And as Will said, it's what's what what else is going on that yeah. you need to be aware of. Well, you know, doing. It, it's the one that you see that you don't see the rest of them. So what are you know, is that the one that's, you know, causing, the, you know, like the ruse or something where, OK, everybody else run this way or something, you know, or they're studying how you you react to him if you're aggressive or if you're passive or. Ooh, I'm a curiosity seeker, so. <laughs> well, now, Milo, that's an excellent point. I think that our posture in how we behave in the forest um, kind of telegraphs to these creatures what our intentions are and what our abilities are. Yeah. So, I think that people that go out solo and they're, for example looking for natural resources, you know, maybe picking some of the natural berries or, or mushrooms, um, they're maybe at risk, higher risk, much higher risk of having a negative encounter with these things than somebody who is very aware, who's carrying a weapon and, you know, looks like they're going to be trouble if the creature tries something. Yeah. Well, one of the things I've been 
looking at it as like missing hikers and stuff. And you get some of these silly people out there going on a nature walk. I mean, in their birthday suit, and that's it. And hey, yeah. guess what? You know, she I, now there's yeah, they they vanish, and so without any trace or, or finding their bodies or anything. So you know, it, I. They could be falling pretty anybody or some sick guy, you know, or a person or, you know, I, I shouldn't say guy, but, you know, hey, there's there's weird things out there. And for you to, for us or that individual who goes out there thinking that, you know, nothing's ever going to happen to him. Well, you know, there's people who fall down cliffs and who think they can try, you know, who've been out in the woods more than anybody. Well, I'm, I know how go through here i've been through here a million times well it's that one time that you didn't see that that rock in the middle of the world and you fall a thousand feet you know hey there you go well there's a little bit yeah there is that element of unpredictability of your environment and yeah you're exa you're exactly right because just you know all your wilderness training schools will tell you, and I'm sure you got this in the Army as well, a four-foot fall solo in the wilderness can be death because you can break an ankle. Oh, yeah. And you're, and you're not on a game trail or, excuse me, on a hiking trail. And now what are you going to do? And I've been in such a, well, I, I, we talked about that earlier today. I've been in situations where, you know, you, you if you didn't have somebody around to help you, you just might have been in deep kimchi. So, I haven't heard that one in a while. Hey, yeah, I, I just I did that just for your benefit, Milo. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I knew you'd pick up on it. Yes, I did. But uh, you know, I I I look at that as you know, you you can look at it like the the golden BB or you know the the one thing that's going to get you that you uh, didn't see coming, you know, and and I, I really believe that when it comes to these situations where uh, individual wants to go out there and look for one by yourself with, you know, I, I'm, you, you, you might find show, one or it will find you actually. I, I, I believe that. I think when you see one, that's not the one you got to worry about. That, he's out there. Well, that's my hypothesis anyway. I, I think it, a lot of it is he's he's the the reactor factor where the rest of them go, oh, yeah, he's an idiot. We're going to play with him. You know? <laughs> well, no, there's, there's a good point to that because the area that we were at in September, I was there the previous August with a group, and it would have been you, you know we we that's where we encountered the creature we smelled that awful smell we saw it and then we stayed in the exact same area that will and i and three other guys stayed in, a, in kind of a meadow and throughout the night and there were screams there was roars there was houses were being surrounded i cannot imagine being there solo by yourself i mean the creatures may have just said well we've had enough and you know we're going to take him out yeah well, Phil, well see that oh go ahead Milo. i'm sorry 
Well, it's like that goes back to Clark Ranch with us, you know. I mean, they were that close to us, mm-hmm. to, and and for one to actually grab one of us, and 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 not do any harm. That after everything else that I've seen and around the world, and, and and that just amazes me that we walked out of there alive. Yeah, I mean, they they were testing the waters whenever there's a group. You know, they're not going to be too bold. I mean, unless they've got that experience under their belt, so to speak. Uh, and, yeah. and it has happened, but... Um, so, fellas, it, we're just about out of time on this segment. Uh, any final thoughts, guys? I just... Uh, I really enjoy this. Good discussion, and... Uh, um, I need more of my toolbox about the smelling thing. Right? <laughs> I do. Oh, I yeah, mean, right. I think a lot of it is... That will help describe a lot of it is to to put a marker on that. Yeah. Brian, you got anything? I think Brian's on mute again. All right, fellas, we'll listen. We'll wrap this segment up. Everyone, stay tuned. Can you, can you guys hear Yeah, me? we can hear you. Uh, you got any, any last <laughs> thoughts, Brian? Yeah, I just want to thank Milo for coming on. I mean, it was a great... Hey, my pleasure. all right fellas stay tuned for the next segment in bigfoot history near bend oregon fall 1957 lee trippett interviewed gary jonas the interview gene who told him that while he and jim newell were hunting at winoga butte southwest of bend They saw a giant human-like creature at least nine feet tall come out of the brush and pick up a deer he had shot. I talked to Mr. Jonas on the phone in 1967. He said that the deer entered the clearing acting as if it were afraid of something coming behind it and never noticed him at all. After he shot it, he waited to be sure it was dead. When suddenly the giant emerged from the same place as the deer, gathered it under one arm and ran off making a strange whistling scream. Mr. Jonas emptied his 30 6 into its back, but it kept going. He saw no indication that he had hit it, yet it was so close that he didn't see how he could have missed. He did try to follow it. The creature was hair-covered. He noticed particularly long hair hanging from its arms. I met the Abominable Snowman, a true story by Dr. George Moore, M.D., exclusively published in Sports Afield, May 1957. Readers will enjoy this eyewitness novelistic account by the first American to meet face-to-face the mystery animal of the Himalayas, the Yeti. Even without Moore's chance meeting with the mysterious creatures of the Himalayas, the author of this account would have a remarkable story to tell. In October of 1952, Dr. Moore, his wife and daughter, arrived in Nepal. Dr. Moore, as Chief of the Public Health Division of the U.S. Operations Mission under the Foreign Operations Administration, was the public health advisor to the new Nepalese government that had thrown the doors of the land open to foreigners for the first time since 1816. Dr. Moore pioneered the health program of a country suddenly plummeted into the 20th century. His duties took him on extensive trips into towns and villages never before seen by white men. 
Moore became fascinated by the customs and habits of the Nepalese people, a people quick to win his lifelong admiration and respect. After his two-year tour of duty expired, Moore inactivated his commission in the Public Health Service and is at present director of the San Juan Basin Health Unit in Durango, Colorado. The story begins. Monsoon! Heavy gray clouds had been drifting northward from Calcutta for days that June in 1953. Already early rains, warning of what was to come, had soaked the red dust of the Himalayas. The air was clean and cool. Myriads of tiny blue, white, and yellow potentia had suddenly blanketed the green tundra above the timberline. It was curious how the colors deepened as we descended the slope. White grew highest, then yellow, mixed with white, and finally blue flowers dotted the landscape farther down. The rains weren't bad enough to travel in, but at least they were a welcome change from the snow about 17,000 feet. Gusenkun Pass had been the last high obstacle to Kathmandu on our return trip from the northern border of Nepal. In fact, the day before had seen us sloshing knee-deep in the soft, wet snow. Our coolies suffered the most. Half-naked and barefooted, they had struggled desperately carrying 80-pound packs on their backs. A Himalayan blizzard is no joke, even for the experienced native porters, when slippery rocks and precocious ledges must be climbed. Brooks, Dr. George K. Brooks, an entomologist on our staff and I were slowly making our way back to our homes in Kathmandu, the capital of Nepal, from a mission of mercy to the Sherpas of the northern country. The government had asked us to help in controlling an epidemic of typhus in Sherpaland, our name for the high Himalayan country close to the Tibet border. We had been the doctors assigned to the job and now were weary, but satisfied that the evil Rikitisia were licked for good. We raced to get home before the monsoon whipped us. Black skies, torrents of rain, and foggy, slippery trails on the sides of the mountains obviously held no love to Himalayan intruders such as we. It was at 11,000 feet. I remember that we had left Turkey Gyan, the last village of the Grateful Sherpas. We're heading south now. The foothills of the Himalayas that surrounded Kathmandu 28 miles away were visible from the tops of the mountains. This was the era of the home of the gods, a holy place to the natives. Our footsteps followed the same path two or three thousand devout Hindus take on the annual pilgrimage to worship in the Himalayan heights. A scant two or three hundred returned from these journeys. The rest die along the way. On our journey up, smoke from countless funeral pyres were a reminder of the rigor and mystery of the area. The trail was less steep now, but slick with red mud. Mossy pines closed over us and thrust their sprawling roots across the way. Bloodthirsty leeches lurking under the rocks and awakened by our sounds crawled on our boots and up the coolies' dark nude limbs at every step. Only speed and more speed would enable us to leave this dismal, lonely, God-forsaken range of mountains. Brooks, as we called him, and I pushed as hard and as fast as we dared. Abrasive-soled boots and six-foot balancing poles cut from the timber enabled us to make excellent time on a ribbon of red mud. It was not long before we had left the coolies far behind. Not even their cries and shouts could be heard. The forest was deathly still. 
Fog banks, raw and cold, drifted through the tall pines and left their boughs dripping and slimy. Rounding a sharp turn in the trail, Brooks stopped abruptly. He leaned against a large rock to extract a leech that was at the point of disappearing over the edge of his boot. I stood there watching Brooks and fumbling for my pipe when an almost imperceptible movement in a clump of tall rhododendron caught my eye. Something had moved, I was sure. There it was again. This time a few leaves rustled more than mere chance could move. Brooks, sensing something was wrong, quickly forgot about his leech. Almost simultaneously, we both slipped our revolvers out of their holsters. On our right, the slope was dangerously steep. Behind us, the slope climbed upward. There was a large boulder by the side of the trail, and we eased over to it, glad for the protection from the rear that it afforded us. We waited, tense and expectant. The stillness was awesome. The fog and mist seemed to form weird shapes, withering and twisting through the dense foliage. Suddenly, from in front of us, a raucous scream pierced the air. Another followed from the right of us. The ghostly quality of the mist and the unreality of the situation had a nightmarish tinge. God, Brooks whispered. What was that? My spine was tingling in high gear now. I gripped my thirty-eight Smith & Wesson more firmly. About twenty feet away, somewhat in front of our rock, was the clump of rhododendron where the first scream broke the stillness. This time, it seemed it though, it was behind us. Brooks, I managed to whisper, let's get on this rock and in a hurry. Brooks did not need a second invitation. In an instant, we scrambled on top of the massive boulder. From our new perch, we carefully searched in all directions for the next move. Our movements must have been closely watched, for a loud chattering immediately assailed us from the bushes in front. The angry chatter filled the raw air as new cries joined in the chorus from all sides. We were definitely surrounded. Brooks muttered, Oh my God, how many of them are there? And what are they? Brooks, I managed to whisper, Let's get on this rock and in a hurry. Brooks did not need a second invitation. In an instant, we scrambled on top of the massive boulder. From our new perch, we carefully searched in all directions for the next move. Our movements must have been closely watched for a loud chattering immediately assailed us from the bushes in front. The angry chatter filled the raw air as new cries joined in the chorus from all sides. We were definitely surrounded. Brooks muttered, Oh my God, how many of them are there? And what are they? We got some idea of what was there when a hideous face thrust apart the wildly thrashing leaves and gaped at us. I shall not long forget the faces grayish skin, beetle-black eyebrows, a mouth that seemed to extend from ear to ear, and long yellowish teeth were nerve-shattering enough, but those eyes, beady, yellow eyes, that stared at us with obvious demonical cunning and anger, that face! Weird ideas were beginning to force their way into mind. Perhaps, but no, damn it, it has to be. This was the abominable snowman. No, I insisted to myself, there is no such creature as an abominable snowman or yeti. This face has to be an ape or a man or a demon or the snowman. A hand pushed through the leaves. 
than a quick movement and a shoulder. There before us appeared the semblance of a body. Sweat was visible on Brooke's face now as we crouched lower, hugging the rock for what it was worth. My hands looked white in the semi-darkness. As the creature emerged through the dark leaves, we strained to make out this form. I felt blind panic start through me. Then I stopped. Balls of fire, I thought. I've got to get a grip on myself. The creature was about five feet tall, half crouching on two thin, hairy legs, leering at us in an undisguised fury. Claws or hands seemed dark, perhaps black, while his bedraggled, hairy body was gray and thin. It shuffled along with a stoop the way a Neolithic caveman might have walked. Well-built and sinewy, it could prove to be the most formidable opponent. Teeth bared, it snarled like an animal. Two long fangs protruded from its upper lip. Suddenly, a sharp, flickering movement behind it caught our eyes. George, a tail, look there, Brooks cried. A thousand thoughts raced through my mind at once. Well, Brooks, I replied, this thing could be the abominable snowman, but it also can be an ape, a large logger ape, perhaps. Truthfully, I was more concerned with survival than identification. The band of animals was certainly aggressive, giving every indication that they meant to destroy us. But I couldn't help thinking about the creatures themselves. They didn't look like the common langur monkeys I had seen in India. At the same time, they had ape-like characteristics. Scientific possibilities crowded their way into my mind, even as I checked my revolver for the attack. Higher altitudes, fewer minerals in the water, could produce less hair. Lack of heavy timber in the high regions, which would make climbing ability relatively valueless, could produce an erect species. Mutations, the methods by which new species are created, have occurred and are constantly observable in laboratories. Variations within a single species over a period of time can produce animals greatly different from the parent strain. I had no time to share these thoughts with Brooks. The best I could mumble was an unsteady, Get ready. Other figures were now approaching from several directions. We could make out six or seven of them through the mist. One appeared to be carrying a baby around its neck. They seemed to mean business as they growled at each other. The one that had pushed through the foliage first was a leader. There was little question as to his authority as he led the attack. Brooks, I said hurriedly. Let's try firing over their heads to see if we can scare them. Don't hit them, for heaven's sake, or we may have them in a frenzy. A wounded animal, if they are animals, won't stop. And if they are demons, the Sherpas will never forgive us if we kill them. The Sherpas, superstitious as they are, would rather be killed than offend their gods, especially here. Okay, George, you say when, he replied softly. We sighted carefully through the fog and waited until the repulsive faces were about ten feet away. We squeezed the triggers almost together. The blast swirled in the fog in front of us. Splinters of wood and torn leaves fell through the foliage. The creatures stopped abruptly. A deathly fearsome silence pervaded the darkening air. Let's give them another one, Brooks, I shouted more confident now. The second volley resounded and we were definitely reassured. A third round this time convinced the demons. They turned, howling like wounded coyotes, and fled into the thicket. The excited chattering from the gray gloom told us, however, that they had not gone far. Brooks was reassured. 
As we reloaded, he asked jauntily, What's next, George? Shall we attack? I felt as Burks felt. We needed to do something and do it fast. On second thought, however, caution was required. Slowly, I said, We'll wait it out. I believe until our coolies catch up. We wouldn't have a chance if we moved forward or even tried to make a break. I don't believe that they'll attack the whole party. Our problem now is just how far behind are the coolies. It's getting dark and these pirates won't miss the chance to eat us alive if I don't miss my gas. In another twenty minutes, we won't be able to see it all. We sank back on the rock and waited there in the twilight, nervous as cats caught up a tree. We listened for the sound of the coolies, and we listened for the change in the growls from the thicket that might indicate another attack. At this point, we knew the demons were discussing our future and wondering how to play their cards. We tried to joke, but it was corny and useless. We were scared. The fog was unbearable. It penetrated our wet clothes and chilled our bodies. I shivered suddenly. The rock was uncomfortable. We squirmed continuously as rough edges dug into our muscles. Fog now, almost impenetrable, swirled slowly through the black foliage, throwing dark shadows here and there in wraith-like patterns. Grotesque forms appeared and gaped at us, only to disappear and leave our eyes red and tear-stained from the strain. Brooks pulled out a cigarette and lit it nervously. I knew he wasn't enjoying it. It couldn't be worth the effort. Perhaps it gave him something to do with his free hand. It was then that I discovered that I was unconsciously clicking the cylinder release on my revolver back and forth. Brooks gave me a dirty look and I stopped. The chattering and snarling from the thicket came only intermittently now. I tried to guess the leader's plan. Was he waiting for reinforcements? No, not likely. There couldn't be too many of them in the hills, and this no doubt was the entire pack. Planning to attack? This was more reasonable. No doubt they would hit us in one mad rush. Yes, a single massed attack at the time of their choosing. They would certainly wait until dark at any rate. Damn those coolies. Where were they? The lazy, unreliable boneheads. Have they bedded down for the night? No, they would want a village with all the comforts attached. They'll come. It was almost dark now. We kept straining to see through the gray mist. We were cold and wet. Our clothes clung to us. A black and yellow striped leech crawling up the rock fastened itself on Brooks' boot. The leech, unsure of its prey, stopped and listened. Weaving its upright body slowly in the air, I reached down and plucked it off the wet leather. Half-consciously, I rolled the worm in my fingers trying to crush it. It was too rubbery. I flung it into the trail in sudden disgust. The chattering around us was growing noticeably louder. Sudden loud and urgent growls pretended something new in the offing. Brooks, this is it. Shoot to kill this time and pray. I remember giving him one last look. We had met in Kathmandu only the year before. Already he had become a friend that I could know forever. I cocked the thirty-eight and waited. George, Brooks whispered excitedly, they've stopped talking. An uncanny and eerie silence pervaded the air. What was happening? I raised myself a bit higher on the rock. If they were crawling in for the attack, we had to make every shot count. 
in the bad light, a thirty-eight would not be a very effective weapon, and they wouldn't be afraid this time. But not a movement was discernible. Not a sound could be heard. We waited anxiously, sweat adding to the soddenness of our clothes. Damn it, George, where are they? Then a sound from the right, a cracking of a twig. They're coming down the trail, George. Can you see them? I sighted the barrel of the thirty-eight at the leading figure in the mist. Almost now, a bit closer. Sahib? Sahib? A voice called in the darkness. I hesitated a moment and then came to a sudden realization. Brooks! Brooks! It's the coolies! Thank God we're okay now! Shiva, we're here! Shiva, on the rock! Come ahead! Beautiful, lovely Shiva. My Gurkha foreman, boss of the porters. One of the finest men I've ever known, can ever hope to know. A loyal, dependable, quiet little man whose resource and strength lay deep within him. Not on the surface. A look from him had more effect on the Sherpas than a whiplash would have. For me, he was always there when I needed him. I needed him now. He was here. Sahib, you okay? We hear shots. We come up quick. God Almighty, we thank you, Brooks murmured. Yes, Shiva, we're okay now, I said. Let's go home. My staff and friends back in Kathmandu got quite a laugh when we described our experience on the ridge near Gusinkund. Several wanted to go back immediately, but the monsoon was on us and the torrents made mountain travel out of the question. When the rains had spent their fury, my medical duties took me twice again through the same region. I never saw the animals again. What was it that we saw? A mutant species that man has not yet categorized? Some kind of ape, large, erect, adapted to the high altitudes, made antisocial by its self-imposed isolation, jealous of any invasion of its realm, perhaps? Or was it an entirely new species, an undiscovered animal, a leftover remnant of a prehistoric day, a creature clever enough to elude the curiosity of man, inhabiting an area still almost wholly unpenetrated by even the Sherpas, who seldom stray from the time-worn trails. From 1816 to 1951, the country of Nepal, for all intent and purpose, was closed to the outside world. Even today, only a handful of outsiders have explored but a tiny portion of this land. Yet it was this handful, more interested in climbing mountains than foraging for new species, that brought back tales and evidence of the mysterious creature they call the Yeti. One thing is certain. Whatever science will someday discover it to be, the creature humankind has called the abominable snowman is there in the Himalayan heights. I know. I met it there on the pilgrim trail from Tarkagiong. Welcome. This collection of stories is being brought to you by William Jevning and are being narrated by me, Jim Sower. Story number one. Grand Marais, Cook County, Minnesota, 2011. Snowmobiler spot Sasquatch in Superior National Forest. My sighting occurred in Minnesota. The nearest city to the sightings is Grand Marais, Minnesota. The sighting was in the Superior National Forest on January 29, 2011, around 3.30 in the afternoon. The area has many lakes, and this sighting was near a tributary to one of the lakes. The nearest road to this area is Gunflint Trail. What I and my sister saw that day was incredible. 
We were snowmobiling in the back country of northern Minnesota when my family and I were approaching a downhill section of the trail we were on. There was a clearing on the hillside above us where there was a break in the trees. As I began my descent on the trail, I happened to look up and spotted something in the clearing about 200 yards above me. My sister and I were at the back of our group, so we both slowed to a stop to see what caught my attention. When we looked at what I saw, we observed a tall, man-like creature watching us. It stood there for about a minute, then reached up, grabbed a branch, and walked off into the trees. The creature we saw was maybe seven feet, and was dark brown in color, with darker areas around the face and chest area. It had long arms and a very human-like appearance, with a high forehead area. We grew up in this area and know the local wildlife extremely well. This is not a bear or moose. We have never seen anything like this before. My family has been somewhat skeptical about the sightings of these beings, so when we saw it, it really frightened us. Sorry, no photos, because I was on a snowmobile and it is rather hard to carry a camera in an easily accessible place. We circled around and could see large barefoot tracks in the snow. The snow is so deep in Minnesota this year, so it was hard to get close enough to get any pictures of the tracks. But you could definitely tell that a two-legged creature passed through the area where we saw it. I wish I had more evidence, but unfortunately I never dreamed that I would ever see something like this, so it really stunned us. My sister doesn't want to go there again, but I would really like to go back in the summer to see if there's anything to be found. This definitely made me a believer in Sasquatch. We did not report it to any authorities for fear of being ridiculed. My sister and I wished to remain anonymous for this same reason but we would like the rest of our story to be shared so that others will know that they are not crazy if they see one of these creatures. Anonymous in Grand Marais, Minnesota, February 2012. That's the end of story number one. Story number two. A story out of Siskiyou County, California, approximately 1996. My name is Mark Kennedy, and I have a good story. It happened about ten years ago while a crew of twelve, including myself, was working a contract for the Forest Service to clear a couple miles of wilderness trail. I believe it was our first night at this particular spot, which was an area in the north end of the Trinity Alps. It was about twenty-six miles into the wilderness zone of the Trinity Forest. Camp was about five miles off the road in a beautiful meadow with a small lake called Red Cap Lake. We were done with our second day of work on this particular trail. It was a trail that took you through the prayer rocks of the Hoopa and Yurok tribes. Being in the Trinity Alps, obviously, we were really high up. We started at about 5,000 feet and maybe went up another thousand. The trail was about 10 or 12 miles long and split about three miles south of Red Cap Lake. One trail took you down into one of the many gorgeous secluded valleys in the Alps. The other took you to a point. Literally, the end of the trail was on a point that extended out quite a few feet from the true edge of the cliff. At that point, we were about 2,000 feet above the forest below us, so we were very remote. In the meadow, our first night there, we split into two groups trying to find the best camp spot. 
really not hard to do. The meadow was just about twice the size of a football field. Half was all knee-high green grass. The entire west side of the meadow was a small lake. You could catch pan-sized trout all day long in that little lake. Now our meadow was off the main trail which rode the peaks of the mountains we were on. You walked down into this meadow from the north end, and as you walked, you got a bird's-eye view of the entire area. At the south end of the meadow was an extremely rocky cliff that rose above the lake about 200 to 300 feet with the forest ending right at the edge at the top. So, now you understand the area a little as I tell this story. We were just finishing our nightly session to end the day around the campfire. Both campsites were at the south end of the grass near the rocks, not far from one another. Everybody had just grown quiet as we all were drifting off to sleep. Suddenly, there was this god-awful screaming, howling-like noise that echoed through the meadow to make it sound like the screaming was coming from all directions. And for what seemed to be forever, the strange noise finally stopped and was followed up by one of the trees at the top of the rock cliff getting pushed off. I swear that tree must have hit every single rock that was in its path on the way down. And as it grew closer, the more petrified I became due to its sounding like it was right on top of our camp. Finally, the crashing noise came to a stop without ever landing on someone's tent. I still couldn't move, though. I was frozen position, and I still couldn't move, though. I was frozen position and seeing the brightest shade of yellow I've ever seen. I think the others were, too. Nobody wanted to come out of their tents, but everybody wanted the reassurance of the others. The rest of the night was uneventful. The next morning we were all around the campfire, sounding like a bunch of old biddies gossiping about the night before. We found the tree that came down. It was a full-grown fir. Must have been a full-sized tree when it started down the cliff. Wasn't much left of it when it got to the bottom. I have never heard that strange scream since, and have been back in the woods plenty. None of us could come up with a reasonable explanation for what we heard that night. Shortly thereafter, we were joined by a guide who was Native American. This guide informed us that the prayer rocks I wrote about earlier are on sacred ground, and it is believed that there is a Bigfoot protecting that whole mountain. The guide also went on to say that the noise has been heard before, but in other places. We discussed how big of a creature it would take to push over a full-grown pine or fir tree. We know it wasn't a bear, unless bears are coming up with horrifying new screams. So, it wasn't a bear, but it had to be big and strong. The tree circumference was about four, maybe five feet. And, we concluded from memory of seeing the tree, it was about fifty feet tall and very much alive. At least the parts we were looking at came from a live tree. Nobody would climb up the easy rocky cliff to see where the tree used to be located, so I couldn't tell you if there were any footprints or not. But I can say that this story was backburnered in my memory to tell at the campfires for entertainment. It became very interesting when I heard one of many documentaries about this screaming, howling-like noise that the Bigfoot has been known to make. When I heard that, all of a sudden, that night needed to be shared. This is the end of this story. Story number four. 
August 2007, Lake Tahoe, Placer County, California. Tracks found 18 inches long, 9 inches wide. I was camping last August with my nephew north of Lake Tahoe. We had been in a moderately developed campground, Crystal Peak Overlook, about 20 miles northwest of Reno, Nevada, where we live. There, my nephew made friends with another little boy, and I started talking to the other little boy's grandmother. She told me how her husband and son had found these big footprints that May along a creek above another nearby campground, Dog Valley Creek. They reported that in one print they could even make out separate tow tracks. They told a ranger who gave them some plastic tape to mark the spot. That got me curious, so we moved camp the next day to Dog Valley, a primitive campground. This is on the dry side of the Sierras at the Timberline, which is about 6,000 feet. Generally, the granite soil of the Sierras doesn't sustain much vegetation, but in this area several small streams converge to make a marshy pasture with a lot of biodiversity. We hiked up the creek that flows through the campground. It was a moderately steep climb. About a hundred yards up, I spotted the bits of tape tied to sticks stuck in the ground in a particularly thick patch of trees. The forest floor was covered with pine needles, but you could still see the depressed area of the prints sunk in the soil beneath leaves. In August, when we were there, even I, at over 200 pounds, didn't leave a footprint. But perhaps in May, in the deep shade, the ground had been muddy enough to take tracks. There were three prints marked out, but only one was still the outline of a full foot. However, I could no longer make out any separate toe impressions. It was about 18 inches long and nearly 9 inches wide. All the pictures I took came out pretty useless. Only the one where I put my bare foot in the tracks gives you any idea of size. The area is about 20 miles from human habitation, but gets maybe a dozen people a week off-roading during June through October. The roads to the area aren't cleared in the winter, so there's hardly anyone there until May. The area is in the rain shadow of the high Sierra Peak, so even in winter there's probably less than a couple feet of snow, and it has lots of springs. I'd guess this area would have edible vegetation, if not all winter, at least very early in the spring. This area is not too far south of the Cascade Range, where there are more Sasquatch reports, and might be the sort of area a species might migrate south to for the winter. My nephew asked if the footprint could be made by a really tall person, like a basketball player, so when I got home I did some net research. 18 inches would be a shoe size, 26, many, many E's. The nearest I found was a guy 8 foot 4 who wears a size 25. There are less than a dozen people in the USA that tall, and most use canes or crutches and wouldn't be up to a barefoot hike in the mountains. I don't have a scanner, but I'll see if I can find a friend to scan the one halfway decent photo to you. Yes, I did have a camera, but it was a little 35mm disposable, and the footprint I found is hard to make out, and the markings on the measuring tape I had in one picture can't even be made out at all. There may have been three prints, but only one was clear enough to be a definite footprint. Gina Bagney, date 
Friday, 1st of February, 2008. That's the end of story number four. This next story is entitled, Wichita County, Arkansas, 1940s. I am 75 years old. I was raised in the county of Wichita in Arkansas. We used to hear Bigfoots during wintertime. Dad says they were panthers. Till Dad and his brother saw five Bigfoots in a pool of water at a river bottom. My uncle never got over that shock and would not go into the woods again. Dad said they were ugly, and the females had breasts that hung down to here, pointing to his body. I recall laying in that broad shack. It was cold, listening to them scream and scream, and they did a lot. When I was all of five years old, my dad was out running trap line and doing some farming in the summertime. It was at this time that our canned goods began to go missing from our smokehouse. One time, whole smoked ham disappeared. We could not figure out who was taking the food. My dad told mother that he thought someone or something was following him when he was out running his trap lines. One day he spotted someone. The little fellow was about four and a half feet tall with hair all over him. It also had a hump back and was very ugly in the face which had facial hair. Dad began talking to it and leaving food for the little fellow. It wasn't long before when my dad would go into the woods and holler, the little guy would suddenly appear. We named him Little Sam, which was a name my grandpa had. Nobody knew about Little Sam outside of our family. All those years, Dad was in touch with Little Sam. I only saw him two times in my childhood. After I got married and moved to Oklahoma, my mother wrote me and told me about Dad and Little Sam, saying that they had not seen Little Sam in some time, but they went looking for him and found him dead. When I was reading the letter, I started to cry. It was very sad. Little Sam never uttered a word that I heard about, but he grunted. This is the end of story number five. This is story number six. Wild Man in McHenry County, Velva, North Dakota, 1908. The Stevens Point Journal, Stevens Point, Wisconsin, Saturday, February 16th, 1908. Captured a Wild Man. Curious find recently made at Velva, North Dakota. The journal is in receipt of a clipping from a Velva, North Dakota paper from J. Thomas, who is formerly a resident of Keene, a son of Mrs. John Thomas, who still lives at Keene. It relates to the discovery of an alleged wild man near Velva, not far from Mr. Thomas's home. It is stated, for three years there have been rumors of this wild man being seen by persons of veracity, but he had never been encountered at close range until a few days ago, when two cattlemen, who were out hunting, suddenly came upon him face to face as he emerged from a thicket of brush. 
One of them succeeded in throwing a lasso around him, and before he could escape, he was dragged to a tree and bound round and round with the lasso. Later he was bound hand and foot, and carried to town on a dray, where he was imprisoned in a basement. His only clothing was a loin-girdle of sheepskin tied with binder-twine. He had not been shaved or had a haircut in years, and being a man of an extremely hairy variety, he presented a very grotesque and wild appearance. His eye-teeth are reported to be unnaturally elongated in the form of tusks. He refused to talk or eat anything, but drank water like a horse, half a pail at a time. The singular part of it is that this man has always been seen within two miles of the village of Velva. This is the end of story number six. Story number seven. Montgomery County, Arkansas, June 2008. On May 26, 2008, while the writer was in Clark County, Alabama, with area researchers, information was received by telephone from C.K., an Arkansas RFP research project investigator, that a married couple in the rural Montgomery County, Arkansas, had found evidence and had heard sounds that indicated more than one reclusive forest primate was foraging on their property at night. That information had been submitted to C.K., by the adult son of the woman who is joint owner and resident of the property. On June 7, 2008, C.K. and the property owner's son and the writer drove to the site and met with the couple. We arrived about 3 o'clock p.m. and left shortly after 11 o'clock p.m. The couple are in their late 40s and both have daytime employment in Hot Springs. They have purchased a 16-acre tract of land in Montgomery County and plan to build a home on it later. The north side of the property slopes to a small spring-fed creek. That hillside and the creek bottoms below are densely forested with various hardwoods, pine, and cedar. The underbrush has been cleared from the area of the planned home site. Along the creek there is a very thick undergrowth of vines and brush. The land south of the creek was at one time cultivated, but it is now overgrown in brush, vines, and small trees through which trails have been cut with a bush hog. Throughout the property there is a prolific growth of muscandine, summer grape, and blackberry vines. There are at least two pear trees in the old cultivated area, although the one seen by the writer appears to be ornamental Bradford pear. A neighbor told them that he had gathered pears from one of the trees. Earlier this year, the owners obtained utilities on the property, and in late February or early March, they opened a driveway through the timber on the north portion of the property. In late February of this year, they purchased a new travel trailer and installed it about 75 yards from the county road that is the northern boundary of the property. General Information About the Area the actual location of the property is not disclosed at the owner's request. The property is within two miles of a river, which is a popular stream for canoeing and wade fishing. The site is within the foothills of the relatively small but rugged Caddo Mountains, which adjoin the southern flank of the Wichita Mountains. The area contains a large population of deer, turkey, and raccoon. 
The area has some cougar and no doubt many bobcat. A large male cougar was reportedly killed within one half mile of the property a short time ago. During this initial visit to the site, the writer noted a very fresh cougar track in the dust alongside the county road near the home where a wide, well-used game trail crosses the county road. While the area is expected to contain all the other small animals and birds common to this part of the state, it was surprising that no coyote sign was seen around the property, and when asked, the owner said they had never heard coyotes in the area. Summary of Events After moving into the travel trailer, the owners built a wooden porch patio underneath the trailer's retractable awning. While neither of the residents are hunters, and neither own a firearm, they are both avid bird and animal watchers. They have installed feeders for birds, and began putting out dog food and scraps for the raccoons. For some time the couple had been spreading corn on the ground in a spot in the woods in front, east of the trailer, and at another location on the opposite side of the trailer as food for the deer. Sometime after they started putting out corn for the deer, they found a carcass of a deer near the west side feeding area. The witnesses stated that one of the deer's front legs and its head had been torn off. The head was found a few yards away, but the leg was partially eaten nearby. Both of the deer's back legs were broken, and much of its hind quarters had been eaten before the carcass was found. They stated the deer's body cavity and stomach had been torn open, and the internal organs had been removed. There was undigested corn and corn mush inside the body cavity and spilled outside the carcass. When the carcass was again viewed the next day, they saw fresh blood and an exposed shoulder blade which indicated something had fed on the carcass overnight. A week or so later, another deer carcass was found at the other baiting site in front of the trailer. Both of the deer's back legs were broken, and the carcass torn open and partially consumed. Shortly after finding the last deer carcass, the couple stopped putting out corn because they thought a cougar was ambushing the deer at the baiting locations. A day or two later, the couple found an injured dog lying beside the porch early one morning. They don't own a dog. When they stepped outside, the dog managed to get up and walk away, but there was a large bloody area on the ground where it had been lying. Shortly after seeing the injured dog, they found out that another dog, a Rottweiler weighing close to 200 pounds and belonging to the neighbor, had been attacked or otherwise injured. Something had torn off one of that dog's back legs. According to the couple, the dog somehow managed to return to his owner's home and still was alive. The couple said that now the large dog usually just stays on the porch and will no longer leave the owner's yard. Investigators note, when C.K. and the woman's son and this writer were leaving the couple's home site and driving through the woods road toward the county road the night of the initial meeting, C.K., who was sitting in the front passenger seat, told me there was a deer in the woods on my side of the vehicle. I stopped and saw an animal that I at first thought was a coyote moving through the woods. As I entered a more open spot, we saw that it was a large dog. We then drove away. The next night, about 8.30 p.m., the property owner called to tell me that when he went outside early that morning, he found a dog badly injured 
at the old baiting site east of the trailer. He said that it appeared the dog's back or its hips had been broken. He said at the time that he did not think that the dog would survive, although he said the dog managed to drag itself away the next morning. From his description of the dog, it was the same one that the three of us had seen the night before. Shortly after finding the deer carcasses, the husband spoke to a neighbor about any strange things that had occurred on the neighbor's property. The neighbor reportedly told him that five of his sheep had been killed and ripped apart inside an enclosure. When asked what he thought had killed the sheep, the neighbor said he thought it was dogs because he found some type of terrier inside the enclosure when he found the dead sheep. The couple stated that they had often sat outside on the patio porch at night and early in the morning during the week. He arises about 4.30 a.m. on weekdays to make coffee, and she joins him outside for a few minutes later. They both leave for work about 5 a.m. They stated that on many occasions when they stepped outside before daylight, they would hear the sounds of something crashing through the woods and brush near the trailer. They assumed it was deer bounding away, although they thought it was odd that deer would make such noise leaving the area. They said that on several occasions they had heard loud, ape, or monkey-like sounds from the adjoining woods while sitting outside late in the evening and at night. Recently it became apparent to them that at times the sounds were being made by more than one animal. A few weeks ago a relative found a very large, about 18 inches long, track in a fire ant hill near the creek. The residents found another such track in one of their small vegetable gardens located northeast of the trailer. On the day of this initial visit, the writer observed two recently made tracks of about the same approximate size in the leaves and soil west of the trailer. The property owners also reported that some of the suet blocks used to feed birds were torn down and removed. They supposed that raccoons had taken the food even though the couple thought they had suspended the blocks out of the reach of those animals. The husband began using wire to secure the door of the wire suet baskets so that raccoons could not open them if they managed to get them. Although the wife stated she could not open the baskets with her hands after her husband wired them shut, something continued to tear the baskets down and open them to obtain and consume the suet blocks. Recently the couple began putting up hummingbird feeders. Two of the feeders are small, but one holds about a quart of sugared water. A few nights ago, when the large feeder was nearly full, something reached the feeder and drank the entire contents except for some spillage that coated the outside surface of the container. The feeder was elevated and suspended away from a tree trunk on an L bracket. Because of the position of the container and its capacity, the couple thinks it is unlikely that raccoons emptied it, although they concede that a raccoon might have been responsible. Other details. While completing this initial report, the writer telephoned the reporting witnesses at 8.40 p.m. on June 10th to ask about a few details. After clarifying the details, the husband asked if he could pose a question to me. When I told him that, of course, he could, he asked if I had ever heard whooping-type sounds, which he began to imitate over the phone. The sounds he made were nearly identical to the whooping sounds attributed to the reclusive forest primates. 
When I told him the possible source of the sounds, he said that both he and his wife had heard those sounds about twenty minutes earlier, coming from the opposite side of the creek and downstream. After some discussion, he said that he might go onto the porch and make those sounds to see what would happen. I advised him to be extra careful because the animals might be much closer than when he heard them originally. This is the end of this collection of stories. Thank you for listening. Bigfoot Lore Alive in Estacada Area, Clackamas County, Oregon Long History of Alleged Encounters in Estacada by Vanessa Von Voris for the Estacada News, October 1, 2008 While hiking along the snowy banks of the Clackamas River late one January afternoon in 1969, Millie Kiggins of Estacada, her husband, and their friend Art Schneider found something that would thrust the Kiggins and the quiet wilderness surrounding Estacada into an international spotlight. We went to look at a Forest Service cabin up above Squaw Lake on the way to Cold Springs about 20 miles from Estacada, Kiggins said. They were going to sell them, and we wanted to look at them. We started out late, and we were in about three feet of snow. There was a gate, and we couldn't get through. So we started to walk, and it looked like somebody had already gotten through because there were tracks in the snow. They noticed the large size of the tracks and their depth. They were 18 inches deep, she said. Whatever had made them was heavy, because ours were a couple inches deep. It had to have been walking on two feet, and its stride was 67 inches. The path of the tracks was in an unusually straight line, too straight to be man-made footprints, she said. The hikers followed the imprints for about a quarter mile before they realized it was getting late and decided to turn back. Before leaving, Kiggins documented their discovery with a photograph and contacted the U.S. Forest Service. They said it was a snowshoe rabbit. I have no idea what it was, but if it was a rabbit, it would have to be a big one to make prints that big. I told him if it was a snowshoe rabbit, they had better look out because it's big enough to eat them, she said. Back at home on their farm, on the outskirts of Estacada, the Kigginses began to experience a series of Bigfoot-like phenomena. He was around here for a year, she said. We found footprints all over the farm. Once they led to a five-foot fence and continued on the other side uninterrupted, as if he stepped right over it. Sometimes we would smell him. Smelled like a bad nursing home. We heard loud screams and grunts all at once lasting 10 or 15 seconds. It could be heard miles away. The hair on the back of your neck would stand up. It spooked the cattle. Kiggins sent a copy of her picture to Bigfoot hunter John Green, who later visited her with Roger Patterson, famous for the Patterson-Gimlin Bigfoot film footage from 1967. KATU interviewed her, and she was included in a British television documentary. Her photograph was published in a book written by a wildlife biologist and in a fifth-grade textbook. During the early 1970s, Estacada became a hotspot for Bigfoot enthusiasts. Scientists, hunters, trappers, and the media came from throughout the country and across the sea in the hope of gathering evidence of the existence of an elusive, shadowy creature that walks the forest on two legs. Many of the Bigfoot hunters also came looking for Kiggins. Eventually, the Estacada Police Department, back when Estacada had one, helped put a stop to it. We had all sorts of crackpots up here, she said, and I guess I'm one of them because I saw the tracks, but I can't help that. For anonymous first-hand accounts of Bigfoot phenomena, 
enthusiasts can now peruse the databases of websites such as OregonBigfoot.com and BigfootEncounters.com that collectively contain approximately 40 reports for the Estacada area alone between 1912 and 2006. A U.S. Forest Service employee, who does not wish to be identified, said she has never taken a single Bigfoot report in the 12 years she has worked at the desk of the Clackamas River Ranger District Office in Estacada. We don't have a book or a piece of paper that states sightings at all, she said. She refused to comment further for fear she would, quote, get in trouble again, unquote. There is at least one highly photographed, easily accessible Bigfoot in Estacada, a menacing replica created by a chainsaw artist. It guards the entrance to Mike's second-hand store and holds a sign warning potential shoplifters they will be eaten. I've heard second- or third-hand stories, store owner Mike Doolittle said. I would think that if there was a Bigfoot, I would have heard about it on the 6 o'clock news. I know Santa Claus is real because I've seen him. I've never seen a Bigfoot. Kiggins has never seen Bigfoot either, and she is careful to emphasize that she is not exactly sure what created the strange tracks, the spooky sounds, or the awful smell. Although nearly 40 years have passed since she photographed the tracks in the snow, she still gets correspondence from Bigfoot enthusiasts. I recently got a letter from a guy in England who wants to know about it, she laughed. I don't know if I'm going to write back. It might be just another crackpot. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G, at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open out there.